Peter. Peter, I am so excited that you're here. I really am. Why OC? You know, for your French uh, listeners. Uh, Mark Metcalf is a most wonderful human being. Yes, he, he is. That he has connected me with you. I am so grateful. And he uh, he has nothing but wonderful things to say about you. Yeah, he's pretty, we, you know, well, you know when we met, so that's a long time. He's I know when you met, but you've worked together again since, haven't you? Yeah, he produced a movie I did called Chilly Scenes of Winter. I uh, loved that Micklin. movie. Yeah, mm -hmm. Joe Mecklen Silver, who she died about nine months ago, I think, maybe oh. last year. Yeah, she was, I did two films for her, Chilly Scenes and Cross Glancy, yeah. Okay, Crossing Delancey, you know, we're going we, we're gonna to have to talk about this because um, every woman I know is obsessed with the pickle man. <laughs> so, guys, I can introduce you to. So, Gus, okay, was that Gus's pickles? Yes. Yeah. It was that, it was 1987. Seven. And I, it, it's probably gone now, uh, or they've moved, but that spot that we were shooting in uh was i don't know if it was the original gus's but the lower east side there was a you know there was a pickle stand on every corner practically yeah but gus's was the thing yeah. Gus's was the thing and did you okay so i i know that you i'm a bronx girl i don't know if you know that no i'm bronx i know you bronx i'm the bronx where in the bronx i was born uh, on the grand concourse right by yankee stadium i lived my grandparents lived on walton avenue I know Walton, and then I lived in Pelham Parkway. Where did you? Where were you in the Bronx? Uh, 140 Van Cortland Avenue West, down the bottom of the hill. And that was rich, Van Cortland. Rich? That was not rich. <laughs> they built to us. up richer. Well, it was built up around us. But I went to PS 95, and then in 1954, uh, my folks moved to. Uh, uh, town in Lower Westchester called Ardsley. It was actually okay. Hard. Now that was that was moving on up. That was that was moving. Well, on uh, up. yeah, and, and that was the era of the veterans uh, who got the GI Bill, and they were moving all over the place. So ah. uh, it, you know, we'll we'll have a rich conversation about it. But it was a an amazing time and a weird time. So your father was a was a GI, and what did he do for a living after the the service? After the war, he came back, I guess, in '45. Mm -hmm. uh, he was in the poultry business, and he started uh, when he was a young guy, uh, in probably when he was 18. He was born in 1915, so that around 1933. Yeah, a friend of the family, or maybe a mentor of his, a guy named. Uh, Bib Brown got him involved, and uh, and my father grew up in Utah. We used to call wait them, what? Yeah, we used to a call Jew them, in Utah. We used to how call them this? Mountain Jews. <laughs> now, how did he end up in Utah? Well, in 1907, I think all the grandparents came over through Ellis Island. Okay, and, right, sure. Uh, my my mom's parents settled in Harlem. And my father's parents settled in Salt Lake City because the patriarch had come over, I guess, at the end of the 19th century and set up mm -hmm. like a haberdashery store in Salt Lake City. But how and did they even think to go? Were there Jews there? Was there like a... There's Jews everywhere. <laughs> Pick a place, there's a Jew. 
They're probably getting the shit kicked out of them right this second. But actually, the, the myth of the Ellis Island is that all the immigrants went to New York. Right. But only about a third of them went to New York City. Did they put encourage them to go somewhere else? Did they push them? Uh, that I don't know. I wouldn't be mm -hmm. surprised. Um, I mean, at one point, the Lower East, East Side was the most inhabited spot on the planet. Right. And um, But I would say once they picked Ellis Island as the as the place to enter because it used mm -hmm. to could enter all over the place. Is that so? Yeah, there was entry. Wait, when did it become Ellis Island? I know my family 18, came over there. 1882, somewhere in okay. there. Okay, uh-huh. And most of the, I think it stopped functioning that way around 1920. And okay. I believe even today. No, no, it had, to, it had to be later than that because my- been. Mother-in-law came over from Germany in the 40s after the war, and I believe- Well, I, I just wasn't as huge as it was. Okay, uh-huh. But now you can arrive by plane, obviously, so it's you don't have to. But at its height, I don't remember what the numbers were, mm -hmm. but, um, you know, I, I don't know if the numbers are the same now, but I would say somewhere between 35% and 40% of Americans can trace their family to Ellis Island. To this day, wow. it's pretty extraordinary. Wow! Considering so, living in an anti-immigrant era, which is nonsense, but yeah, it was a very fascinating thing to know that I that I had family, and you know, my sister's actually right there with her husband now, visiting relatives there. And and so, how did your father get from there to New York? Uh, I think his parents were arguing their way east. <laughs> Not exactly sure. <laughs> where the decision came from but they ended up on uh like washington heights that area okay okay yeah, so that's the upper, upper manhattan upper manhattan and then you ended up in the bronx which, which is where i was and so so going to ardsley so you're a little kid you're growing up in the bronx what's the first thing like okay so wait wait what did your father was in the poultry business right and my um, mom was a piano teacher and she had studied to be a concert pianist, but she suffered from horrific uh, performance anxiety. Oh. So she couldn't do it, mm -hmm. uh, which, of course, that's an, another story that I ended up, you know, performing uh, where she could. But uh, she was a teacher and she taught for as long as I can remember. And did she teach you? Did you play piano? I do. I, I <laughs> she asked me if I wanted to learn to play the piano. And I said, yeah. And she said, uh, okay, I'll, I'll find a teacher for you. And I said, I don't want to teach her. You're a teacher. I'll study with you. And she said, no, no, you can't study with me because we'll fight. And she I was said, very wise, your mother. Very smart. Very smart. <laughs> I said, what do you mean we'll fight? We're not going to fight. <laughs> Fighting all the way. So I took one lesson. And of course, we fought. And <laughs> But you know, you can tell by my nature that I can't resist opening my two cents. So you're an Aries. You uh, fight. Yes, I'm absolutely <laughs> an Aries. Anyway, she sent me to a conservatory. Oh. And in White Plains. And one of my fellow students was the daughter of, oh my goodness, it'll come to me. Very famous. Uh, mm. Who wrote uh, Take the A Train? Uh, 
Uh, sorry. I'm, I'm failing that test. Yeah, I have no idea. Left. Anyway, it'll come to me. Yes. Anyway, I didn't have any discipline. And mm-hmm. uh, my mom used to tell me, if you could just sit for 15 minutes, and I, you know, 15 minutes to me was like, are we there yet? I couldn't, uh, uh, until I found acting, I didn't even know what discipline was. So- Wait a minute, so how were you as a student of, of ac- academics? Of, music, you- of academics? Yeah. Uh, I would say I achieved mediocrity. <laughs> <laughs> I was Maybe your I, classmate. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I, I had a lot of classmates like that. Y- yes. Yeah, I, I would say that my, my dad put it best. He said, he said, uh, you're getting by. Hmm. And I said, well, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. He said, well, you're smart enough to do well, but you're, when you come up against that moment in any discipline, which means you have to buckle down and mm-hmm. get past that next wall, I, would, I wouldn't do it. And, uh, um, and he used to say to me, you know, if you're lucky, you'll find something that you love mm-hmm. because then you'll be the luckiest person on the planet. And I found it through acting. And but how I, did, how did, what rang that bell for you, Peter? The acting? Mm-hmm. Well, since I was a kid, I mean, starting at age three, my father took me to baseball games, just theater. And then he would take me or they would take me to the rodeo and the circus. And I went to see... Uh, um, Bernstein's uh, children uh, concerts for young people at Hunter College. I think the first play I saw was with my grandmother. I saw um, Peter Pan with uh, Mary Martin and Cyril Richard at the uh, at the uh, Winter Garden on Broadway, and I was off to the races. I mean, that's what I knew. I just knew there was this thing called theater and movies and. You know, we probably got a television when I was five, maybe 1952, something like that. So I was, you know, I was like all kids are. I absorbed everything and most kids have it beaten out of them. But, you know, I was very lucky. I, my folks were uh, amazing. So that's how I, I just lost you on sound. Sorry, that was, I accidentally hit something. Did you play out in the street? Because we used to play out in the street. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I was. uh, You played a mean handball in Crossing Delancey. Was that something that you did as a kid? Did you play that stuff? No, I I was actually the guy I played against was Mm -hmm. a handball champion. And he was my uh, tutor. (laughs) And he kept saying to me, I only got you. I only got to get you to play for a minute. (laughs) So calm the hell down and just pay attention. (laughs) That's and a I, hard you know, game, though, handball. Very hard, very hard. So what were you playing out in the street? What was what was the stick kid ball, game? Stick, stick ball. ball. Handball, mm-hmm. stick ball. And then by the time we moved up to uh, Ardsley, mm-hmm. it was actually Hartsdale, but I lived in Ardsley, I mean, as a kid, in the schools and everything. And then I started playing baseball and, uh, you know, basketball, you know, I was so tiny. The basketball was like almost <laughs> my size. <laughs> And football, we didn't, I didn't play football. We played flag ball. Sure. You know, where you'd wear those things on sure. shorts or whatever. Soccer, Newcomb. Newcomb. Nobody cool. knows what Newcomb is except New York Jews. I don't yeah. think anybody else plays Newcomb. It's a great game. It was, it was a great, great game. game. So I, I, uh, 
you know, I did everything. And in New York City mm-hmm. in 1950, let's see, I was five in 1953. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my class was so big that if you were born before April 30th, you didn't go to kindergarten, you went to first grade. So I was April 11th. So I, I, uh, I was in first grade, PS 95, and I'd walk to school. I'd have to walk all the way up this big hill by myself. I mean, I, you know, I'm sure parents today would go in New York. Oh, yeah, no, yeah. Let alone the suburbs. Actually, you know, the lesson we've learned is nowhere safe, it seems like. Right. And, you know, I ride my tricycle and catch uh, um, um, <laughs> fireflies at night and put them in a bottle and skin my knees a million times. And uh, we'd play tag and Johnny on the pony and all those crazy games that kids <laughs> would play. And uh, it was great. So when, okay, so I interrupted you when I asked you the first time. So so the acting bug hit because your father was taking you to all these events, your grandmother took you to the theater. I don't think it, it, it hit for a while. Mm-hmm. I, did a, I did a couple of plays in school. I mean, it, you know, in second grade, I think I played A for Apple. You uh, do you remember your line? Because I remember- No, my- I just held up an <laughs> apple, you know? And then uh, I, I played FDR. Oh, I wow. FDR. I played, I had to recite the four freedoms or something like that, you know. Okay, that's and then uh, you know, little one act plays here. I did a uh, a one act called Pullman Car Hiawatha. Whoever oh. wrote that, I don't know. Uh, but then I did we, in my senior year. The senior play was uh, Romanoff and Juliet, which was written oh. by Peter Ustinov, and I played the Archbishop. Uh, and I. You know, but I mean, without being too tooting of my horn, I was really, can we curse? You can fucking curse. Okay, I was fucking (laughs) awesome. And, uh, but there was nobody around to say, you know, there's a profession (laughs) called acting. I just was this, I was a funny kid. And anyway, I did very well. Then I went to college in 1964. I went to the University of Buffalo. Mm-hmm. And I did a play. Wait, what I, was your major in college? Well, it was nothing until I got there. Okay. And then uh, I basically went because everybody else seemed to be going. I had no, <laughs> as my father knew, I had no motivation. It's probably the only school I got into. And uh, <laughs> But it was a state school. Mm-hmm. And to those uh, who are listening, I think it was $1,000 all in. Room and board and books. And a, and a food plant. I don't want to tell and, you what I'm paying off for NYU. Oh boy. Well, yeah. I, it's a different time and it's a it shame is. that America hasn't figured out that education is. No, but at least President Joe is 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 doing the right no, thing. But we, yeah. we didn't get here. Yeah. We, we lost this. Yeah. Now, yeah. The, the idea of public education, I mean, I hope we get it back, yes. but I feel like I was given the greatest opportunity in the world for basically nothing. And when I went to college, I mean, I had a loan was $3,000, which is, you know, like for your kid, that's like food money. And uh, my dad had to help me pay it off. Anyway, by the end of my first year, um, I had a couple of wonderful English classes. And then I heard there's this thing called English major. So I thought, well, I like to read. That sounds like a good plan. 
So I became an English major. And Mark I, Metcalf this- told me that you were somebody who always had a book. Yeah. And that not to ask you a question about a book unless I wanted to take the deep dive because you actually read them. I do read them, but I I uh, I remember when I moved back to the city after graduating, but I always slept books around. That just was my nature. Mm-hmm. But uh, when I came back to New York, I was living in the village and there was a bank around the corner on 14th Street. And I used to go there and there's a line and I'd be standing there waiting on a line for, you know, to take out 10 bucks or whatever. So that's when I started really, really carrying books. Yeah, and in New York, you get on the subway, you gotta have a oh, book. Yeah, you get on, yeah, yeah, yeah. gotta have a book. But I, you know, I was in college, so what did I know? All I had was books. Right. So, uh, yeah, that's. I'm sure that's why Mark remembers because I was, you know, I, I, I used to schlep lots of, I mean, pounds of books, <laughs> and the Kindles, not the Kindle, but you know, the whatever you can get on on. Uh, uh, iTunes or whatever the hell it is. Right. I, it's just so much easier. I do, can carry so you, a library. And, and are you okay with? I still like to hold a book in my hands. I oh, still yeah, struggle no. with the Kindle. No, uh, well, or the Kindle. Uh, <laughs> that too. My wife writes crime fiction, so she's like a genius, and we have more books than you can imagine. And and uh, her name is Cornelia Reed. I was going to R- ask you about Cornelia. R E A D, which of course a writer named Reed is just you can't get better. It's than perfect. Her. Yes. So uh, uh, yeah, I, we love books, and and she now you know she's she's working at a bookstore called Oblong in Rhinebeck. Oh, I love Rhinebeck. We were talking about that. Okay, so let, let's let's take this little segue here. How did oh, you sorry. meet Cornelia? Uh, I had directed a film called uh, King of the Corner. It was based on a collection of short stories. That was O'Henry, right? No, O'Henry oh, was the oh, short oh, film that I directed. That's right. Yeah, but the feature. I'm telling you, uh, that's right. But this is with Rita. <laughs> this is with Rita Moreno and yeah, and yeah. Eli Wallach oh. and Eric Bogosi and Dominic Kinnazy, wow. Harris Yulin. Uh, Beverly D'Angelo. Wow. Yeah, it was an insane cast. And uh, uh, it was also, um, I'm forgetting right now. But yeah, so I directed that. It was based on a collection of short stories by a writer named Gerald Shapiro, who since passed away about seven or eight years ago. It was Mm -hmm. called Bad Jews and Other Stories. (laughs) My producer (laughs) thought... My producer thought it would be too controversial. And I said, well, then don't we want that? Exactly. So they changed it to King of the Corner. Uh, if I if I ever win the Powerball, I'd love to buy it back. I mean, I own it now, but I'd love to change it back to uh, Bad Jews and other stories. I vote for that big time. I Thank love you that. Very much. Anyway, so, so, so uh, after the, it was kind of a, 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 a journey of a character. It's really interesting story. I, you know, maybe it's a B minus, but it's, you know, it, it's just filled with great actors. And- uh, Is this something we can find, Peter? Oh, I'm sure you can. You know, you, you can, can- find anything now. You can find anything. Um, yeah. And on on the, the DVD mm-hmm. is the short film by Courier, that's the O. Henry short story. Right, right. And that got nominated for an Academy Award. Yes, it ridiculous. did. Ridiculous. 
And uh, how fun was that? Was that exciting? Oh my God, it was ridiculous. I'll tell you that story if we have time. Okay. But uh, yeah, it was really amazing. Um, I shot it at a friend's farm uh, up in uh, Rhinebeck, New York. Uh, Carolyn Blackwood and Greg Quinn have a place and they let me shoot there. And I shot it in a day. And, what? Uh, well, it, you know, I got rained out the first day. It's a little more complicated, but um, I, I knew I had something great in O'Henry. Um, anyway, I'll tell you how I met Cornelia. And then okay. I'll come back. Okay. So I had finished King of the Corner mm -hmm. and I knew I wanted a much stronger plot. And I like crime fiction, but I'm not well read in that genre. So mm -hmm. I called a friend of mine named Belinda Broido and I said, do you know anybody who is knowledgeable about this? And she said, well, my, my landlady who lives downstairs, Kiz, runs a murder mystery bookstore called Partners and Crime in the village. So she set up a dinner for us. And she said, what are you looking for? And I said, well, I'm tired of boys with guns. I want a female protagonist. I'm an actor, so I like dialogue. Uh, anything like Preston Sturgis or Pinter or Mamet or, you know, pick a great writer. Wendy mm -hmm. Wasserstein, didn't matter mm -hmm. to me. Mm -hmm. I just want sharp, tart, smart, great dialogue. And uh, that's what I'm looking for. And mm -hmm. she said, literally after that, she said, I think I have something. And she gave me... Cornelia's first book, Field of Darkness, um, and it was a, what they call a um, advanced reader's copy, I think an ARC. Mm -hmm. Anyway, it was about to come out. She gave it to me, uh, Kiz did, and I read it in like a day or two, and I was schlepping the film. I'm using schlepping a lot. Like uh, I was taking the film around the country. Yeah. I was taking the film around the country, King mm -hmm. of the Corner. I went to 27 cities uh, on my own. And uh, I got in touch with Cornelia through her agent or, or her publisher. And we spoke around the end of the tour, which was, I think, October of 19, well, 20, I'm sorry, 2005, something like that. Okay. And anyway, we met and we talked and we became, you know, uh, Facebook friends and she can out talk me and she's very funny. I'm quite brilliant, actually. And uh, so I optioned her book to try and make a movie out of it. And then in the, you know, she wrote three more books with the same character, Madeline Dare. And uh, I couldn't get a movie, but I got a marriage. So that's so a pretty bad. good, pretty good deal there. Really good deal. Very good deal there. Um, I like that story. Okay, so let's get back to 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 Peter. So so you go to school. You get a degree in. It's in English. English. BA in English. And it was course, the height of Vietnam. And did I did. You have a number? Did you have? Oh a yeah. Number? What you was mean, your number? Uh, Fourteen. What? I was going. And what happened? And so you went to school. Well, I got a, I, uh, in New York City, around the mm -hmm. country, uh, you could get a temporary teacher's license. 
So I went to CCNY and took a six week course mm -hmm. uh, to get a temporary teacher's license. And there was a school strike in New York City for, for local uh, community control of schools. Mm -hmm. So in my demented analysis, which turned out to be not so demented, <laughs> I realized that the center of the strike was at a place in Brooklyn called Ocean Hill Brownsville. And I thought that's where I should be teaching because I wanted the community to know that I was on their side. It that's a tough place. Yeah. You can't get tougher. It's, you know, it's all changing. I don't know if Brownsville has changed much, but right. it was as intense as it can get. But I went to the school, I think there were eight schools in Ocean Hill, Brownsville. Mm -hmm. And I went to IS 271 and I met the principal. I believe his name was Bill Harris. And I sat in his office and I, I was 21. I was 30 when I did Animal House. So you know how young I looked in that. <laughs> when I was 21, <laughs> the, kids, the kids used to call me teenager. I mean, they didn't, I didn't have a name. I thought I was just a little older than that. So I volunteered uh, for that school. And I, I knew almost immediately that, not that it was a mistake for me to go, Wait, you're teaching, you're teaching junior high school English? Is that what eighth, you're teaching? Yeah, eighth uh -huh. grade English. And it was so chaotic. There were, in the school year, there were, instead of like two semesters, they were four quarters. They were losing teachers like crazy. Wow. It, but as in all disciplines, the two teacher learns more from the student than the student will ever learn from the teacher. And I didn't realize it at the time, but I was absorbing the greatest acting lessons you could see because I was dealing with these children and their parents and the politics of New York City at the time and the country, it, it was life and death. It wasn't an acting school. It wasn't pretend, it was for real. Wow. But I wasn't an actor yet, but I was a kind of a- A student. Yes, generally I was a student, but I was, a, I've always absorbed from my experiences and I've lived anecdotally because I realized if you can survive an experience, you can tell the experience. Ooh. And uh, that just, I get that. I got that from my folks, I'm sure, because they were always kibitzing about everything anyway. So that, so I taught there for a year and a half, but it was clear to me really urgently that these kids didn't need a draft dodger. They needed a teacher. And there's a huge difference. Teachers are extraordinary. Mm -hmm. And getting a six-week course, that's not being a teacher. But these schools needed bodies. They needed people to at least- This is in the 60s, yeah? 68, yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, September 68 till January 70. And are you a radical at this time? Because I know. You know, I don't think I would really qualify as a radical. Mm -hmm. But in America, you know, saying you're interested in something makes you a radical. <laughs> you know, if you challenge the way things are, the status mm -hmm. quo, you're a radical. So, but I didn't, I didn't seek out that term. I was raised in a very provocative family. Mm -hmm. My folks were, you know, 
really attuned to what was going on. Remember, they were raised in the 30s during the Depression mm -hmm. and World War II, mm -hmm. and they chose sides. You know, they were intense. I don't mean mm -hmm. intense, crazy. They were right. really witty and open-minded. And in the 30s, the political parties didn't provide any answers to questions that young people had. That's why the Communist Party was so successful because they took on racism and mm -hmm. labor, you know, organizing. So that's, I was lucky. I grew up in a very curious family. Mm -hmm. The women were tough as nails. You know, I didn't have to like learn about what it is to be a tough woman. They were mm -hmm. everywhere. And uh, so I feel I was really fortunate because there was no, um, they were no proselytizing. Mm -hmm. It's just osmosis. And they had great senses of humor. I'm sure that's where I got mine from. And, you know, we laughed together when it was crazy and we were serious when it was funny and blah, 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 like that. <laughs> but I didn't, I didn't go to, I didn't start acting um, uh, after I graduated, after I finished at Ocean Hill Browns, I lived on Horatio Street in the West Village. Mm -hmm. And I uh, had just gotten out on a, uh, a draft, of, I mean, a physical. So I was now either 4Y or 4F. And um, I was walking down 7th Avenue and I came to Christopher Street. And I guess I was making a left to go to the old uh, Lion's Den, which was a bar hangout for I writers. ran a club one block away. The old, the old other end, which then became the Rock and Roll Cafe. Next to the bitter yeah. end, there was the other end. So yeah, I ran the Rock yeah. and Roll Cafe, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I wandered in there. Mm -hmm. And above the old Village Voice office mm -hmm. was the offices of this woman who was running for Congress named Bella Abzug. And Speaking I knew of strong women. I knew you yeah. were. Mm -hmm. Well, I knew if I threw my folks because she was in the women's strike for peace. Mm -hmm. So uh, up in Westchester, I guess. So wait a minute. This is before you're an actor. You get involved. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I worked on Bella's campaign when she ran against Leonard Farbstein, who I think had been in Congress for 40 years or something. She was a long shot. And this was for the primary, which was in June. Mm -hmm. So I worked with her from April to the end of June. And it was, again, it was like going to acting school. She was a genius. Mm -hmm. And and it was, I mean, it was so much fun. She was so amazing. And um, after that, I, I had started working at a settlement house on the Lower East Side called mm -hmm. University Settlement House, which is the oldest settlement in the country. I think it started in 1886. A lot of people think it was Hull House, but I think University Settlement was first. Didn't your character in Crossing Delancey do something with something? Did, wasn't your character involved in something like that? No, I, he was. He just was in the pickle business. No, I thought he had like another sideline. I just watched that. I don't, I don't think so. All right. But you may be yeah. right. I just I, I think he did. I think he yeah. did something. You know he better because I he was telling Booby that. I, I think so, but Bubby. I think anyway. it was more of a, I don't recall that, but I don't Maybe recall. Maybe I'm making it up, but funny. anyway, tell us your story. Yeah, so, okay, so you, you got involved with Settlement House. Yeah, University Settlement House. I started, my sister was working as a, uh, a work camp, 
camper, a work camper, yeah, in 1966. So I had been taking a summer course at University of Buffalo and I drove down with my folks to visit my sister. And the director of the summer camp was a guy named Ernie Greisman. And he, uh, one of his counselors had just been fired or quit. So he called me into his office. I was 19, I think. And he convinced me to stay and be a counselor in his summer camp. And I said, I just finished summer school. Why I don't wanna be a counselor. He said, come with me. And it was around the time all the kids were breaking for lunch with their counselors. And he said, just look out that window over there. And I said, what am I looking at? He said, I want you to look at the counselors, see who's coming down. And of mm -hmm. course they were all the young girls counselors. Yeah. <laughs> and they were gorgeous. Okay. And I said, uh, what does this job entail? <laughs> anyway, he became one of my many mentors mm. and I worked for them in 66, 67. In 70, he was the director of the settlement house and he hired me to run the after, day, uh, the after school program. And then I got a job, uh, uh, New Year's Eve, 1970, mm -hmm. going into 71. Mm -hmm. at you maybe remember this place it was called downstairs at the upstairs sure love sure for singers and stand-up people mm -hmm. it was on 56th just west of 6th avenue maybe maybe 7th avenue mm -hmm. and you if you work downstairs you work downstairs at the upstairs if you work upstairs you work <laughs> upstairs and i worked new year's eve you know serving drinks going around tables and serving drinks and i think i made like $70 in cash. And in 1970, $70 is a lot of money. And I don't know why this is. I, I thought I was home, but I was, I must've walked up to my parents' place. They were on 75th and West End Avenue because I lived in the village and it was right. you know two o'clock, three o'clock in the morning. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I woke up December 31st. I'm sorry, I woke up January 1st to what I always call an epiphany. As my eyes saw light, I literally heard myself saying, I'm gonna be an actor. And it was as clear a vision as you could have. And it wasn't even a vision, it was just like a fact. And then, then I started that day. So that's that how I started. Day. Well, I called a couple of friends of mine mm -hmm. who I knew from college who were actors. Uh, one of them was uh, Ronnie Silver, who you may remember, Ron Silver. Of course. And I called up Ronnie and I said, so I'm going to do this. And he said, uh, what? I said, acting. I'm going to, oh. <laughs> I said, uh, can you give me any advice? Mm -hmm. He said, well, you need a picture and a resume. I said, okay, what, what's the picture? He said, a picture of your head. <laughs> My head? He said, yeah, it's called a headshot. <laughs> And I said, where do, you, where do you get these pictures? He said, find a friend who has a camera and take a fucking picture and that'll be your headshot. <laughs> okay, what's a resume? He said, you know, a resume of, of, your, of your work. I said, I haven't done any work. He said, well, make it up. Everybody makes it up. I said, what do you mean everybody makes it up? He said, everybody makes up their resume. I said, isn't that lying? He said, Peter. Acting, we're liars. 
what are you crazy? So I said, so what do you mean? <laughs> Invent a small theater company, put it in some small town and give yourself the part of Laertes. <laughs> do this for the entire page. So, okay, I'm starting to do this. I, you know, I've had my name, you remember name and sure. phone number and your height. And I had one line from high school, uh, you know, the Archbishop and Romanoff and Juliet, and one from the play I did, Stalag 17, that Ronnie directed, that's another story, uh, or co-directed with his a friend of his uh, named Steve Sunshine. Anyway, I thought to myself, well, if everybody's lying, why don't I tell the truth? So I kept the entire resume blank. And at the bottom, I said, worked for Bella Abzug. No, you didn't. Yeah. Well, my thought thinking was, I'm not going to get a job because of these credits. If I can get anybody to comment on how ludicrous this <laughs> is, in my head, I thought I'll be so charming, then that's why they'll hire me. And that's what I did. And then about six wow. weeks later, I got a phone call from a theater that was an off-off Broadway theater that was on 18th Street called the Omni Theater. And they said, uh, we want to hire you. And I said, oh, okay, great. When do you want me to come Wait to a work? minute. Where, where did they come to want to hire well, you? I had auditioned for them in the first okay. two, three weeks of auditioning. Okay. You, know, you went out, I got the trade papers. Oh, that was, Ronnie said, go and get the trade papers. I said, this is like Yiddish to me. What's the trade paper? <laughs> And he explained, you know, show business and variety. And I said, why am I doing that? Backstage, said, right? Backstage. They'll have a listing of all the auditions that you can audition for. Right. Because you're non-union. So I said, okay. So I literally, January 2nd, because the first nobody was doing anything. Hmm. I went down to an audition on 4th Street and 4th Avenue. It was snowy and freezing cold in the apartment, in the, it was a brownstone. There must've been a hundred kids there. Everybody was wearing winter coats. And I'm thinking, this is the theater? I've been to the theater. This can't possibly be the theater. I'm losing you again. Oh shit, I'm sorry. No, there you yeah. So, <laughs> so that's how I started. Uh -huh. I auditioned for this theater company. And they called me six weeks later, somebody either dropped out, which is not uncommon off, off Broadway. So uh, I said, when I met them, I said, how did I get this job? They said, well, we remembered you because you were so funny talking about this blank piece of paper and convincing us that hidden behind it was lots of wisdom and <laughs> acting skills. So they, you know, did you ever, I, and you never studied acting? No, I never went, I, uh, went to drama school. My father asked if I wanted to go. And I was 23, which is you know relatively late. And I said, you know, dad, I got to grow up. I, I just can't take your money anymore. If I'm going to end up in a drama school, I, I'll know why. But I thought it's an apprentice profession. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've been, like I said, been watching the greatest actors, whether it was movies or, or theater, and they didn't know from acting school. So, you know, I didn't think I was breaking new ground, but, uh, and I apprenticed myself to the other 
actors and the and the other writers and the directors. And I thought I'll lose something by not going, but I'll gain something by not going. Mm -hmm. So I was a contrarian by nature anyway. So I figured <laughs> follow that road. Um, and then, uh, and that's just the way it went. So what job jobs did you have, Peter? Uh, you, were you a waiter? I think I, I. Oh, I, I did waiting. I did, I tutored kids. I worked at uh, a Renaissance musical company. I handed out cards on the street for a topless Japanese sushi <laughs> restaurant. Oh my God. Yeah, I, I was, <laughs> you remember you had three or four jobs. But my rent was only $95 a week, $100 a week. So three or four jobs, I could, you know, I could cover it. And, uh, you know, I, I just, uh, it actually in this Omni Theater where I worked mm -hmm. for a year, I acted, I was a stage manager, I worked on the crew, I did sound. And I got a play in April, no, March of 1972. And I, I had a girlfriend at the time. And I said, Ellen, do you know anybody who does this for a living? I think I'm talented, but I, I can't tell. Do you know anybody who like actually knows what acting is? She said, I know somebody who directs commercials, but he works with a lot of big professionals all the time. I said, would you invite him? You think he'd come? And she said, I'll ask him. She said, yeah, he'll come. When do you want him to come? I said, well, opening night, which of course was the dumbest thing I could have done. <laughs> because we have very limited rehearsal time off, off Broadway. Yeah. And you only have 12 performances. Wait, like, what's the show you're doing? It was a show called April by a writer named John Wolfson. And uh, so he came opening night. And I said, did he come? I was like, you know, an eager beaver. Did sure. And she said, yeah, he's, he's over there. Do you want me to introduce? You? I said, no, no, I, I'm fine, I'm fine. So I went over and I introduced myself and I said, thank you so much for, uh, for coming. I really appreciate this. And then I asked the question you should never ask. What do you think? <laughs> so he said, without missing a beat, this is the worst written, worst directed, worst acted piece of shit I've ever seen in my life. And you should get out of this theater as fast as you can. And I went, you know, like Jackie Gleason. Yeah, I'm an, I'm an, I'm an. I didn't, what? I just wanted some feedback. I didn't want to to kick the shit out of me. So I kind of limped back to Ellen and I, I was really, I wasn't Aww. depressed or sad, but it was like, I thought, what the fuck was that guy? You know, so I was beginning my warehouse of learning of how many assholes ruled the world. You know? So anyway, two weeks later, same show, essentially the same performance. I'm sure it got better each time I sure. did it, but couldn't have been much more different than opening night. Two weeks later, a young woman named uh, Debbie White introduced herself to me and she's an actor. And she said, who are you? I said, well, I'm Peter. She said, no, I've, I go to the theater all the time. You're incredible. Who are, I've never seen anybody like you. She said, I, uh, I'm part of an improvisational workshop. Would you be interested in joining us? And I knew improv from Nichols and May and Second City and, uh, you know, the, the um, I just knew about it. 
Right. I knew about the compass players. And as soon as I heard that, I knew instinctively. You know how it goes. Your opportunity is always in front of us, but how quickly you react. Right. So the following Wednesday, they I met them uh, in the evening because mm-hmm. we weren't performing. And uh, that was middle of March, like March 21, two, something like that. And within three months, we had become a performance group called War Babies. Oh, and yes. uh, Debbie White, same Debbie, had gone to an audition at the Manhattan Theater Club where they were putting together uh, an improv company. And um, she came back to rehearsal that night. She said, why am I joining them? Why don't we start our own company? So there were about 16 people and about six of them said, oh no, I can't do that. That's not for me. And we all said, that's okay. But there were about 10 of us. And uh, one of them, I think Lenny Roberts knew of a, he was in the group, uh, Lenny Levine, I think is his real name, but he was a folk singer and worked in the music business and did commercials and jingles. And he said, I have somebody that I know who has a, uh, a uh, club on 74th street, uh, just west of uh, Amsterdam called the Focus Coffee House, Focus 2 Coffee House, I think it was called. So they gave us a gig, like June 21st, 2nd, somewhere like that, on a, probably on a weekend, maybe. I can't even remember. And that was our first performance. Okay, so wait, Peter, did improv come naturally to you? I mean, there are certain rules. Oh, I, I did improv. I mean, there's, uh, it, it, I did improv. It, improv's hard. And Very hard. So how did you, did they school you? Did you school each other? How did you guys figure it out? It was, we worked with Viola Spolin's uh, uh, Theater Games for Young People. Mm -hmm. And we used that book as the Mm -hmm. template. Mm -hmm. And each, there was a person each night, each Wednesday, who ran the rehearsal Mm -hmm. or the workshop, I should say. And it was their responsibility Mm -hmm. to choose the different games. And... Uh, it was about a three-hour workshop. Mm-hmm. Everybody got a chance or more than one chance. Mm-hmm. And we would keep teaching ourselves. And then when Debbie said we ought to form our own group, we'd been into this for three months. Mm-hmm. And I could tell I'd never been around so many people who were earning a living, whether it was performing, you know, folk singing, jingle singing, acting, mm-hmm. commercials, uh, you know, tours, Broadway. This was an immersion in people who worked for a living. Now, wait, how are you earning your living during the War Babies when this is started? I've got three, these three, four jobs. <laughs> three jobs. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. I'm working in the corners. I mean, I, you know, I don't know from a job. I don't even have an agent. You know, I, I didn't know anything. But All you have I a headshot. Is, you have a headshot. I have a headshot and a blank piece of paper. So Tony's asking me, who took your first professional headshot? Do you remember? Yes, it was a guy who lived at 88 Horatio Street. I, think I can't believe your memory. You're freaking me out. Yeah. Well, it's just, you know, that's what happens when you get older. You remember shit, but you can't know where your comb is. You know, it's that kind of stuff. <laughs> but I, his name was John Barron, mm-hmm. and he was an actor. And I still have the shot. Uh, and it, it was an incredible headshot. Wow. I don't mean... It looked like I was made up. It just looked like me. Yes. And that's what I learned is what you want. That's you don't right. want to not be you. 
you want people to look at your picture and go, I don't know if that guy's got talent, but let's see who he is. And um, uh, so John took that picture. And uh, that's what so I- So now you guys get the war babies. The war babies get the gig at the club. Right. And how does that, it's three months, you're saying three months, like it's a long time. Three months with improv. Yeah. Very no, time. it's very small, very small. But we, we all had crazy courage. And that's what it takes to, as you know, not just show business in life Absolutely. in general, you have to have some kind of crazy idea that you know what you're doing. So uh, two of the actors, um, uh, John Welsh, who has since passed away, he was a genius improviser, and Rennie Temple, who's no slouch, designed a, a, um, a light system. They had a rheostat and we had lights. We, we performed on a stage that was about maybe maybe three feet off the, the ground from the tables mm -hmm. against a uh, backdrop of a tie-dyed piece of, you know, it's 1972. <laughs> yeah. So it was a tie-dyed sheet. Uh -huh. and they put up lights that we could control on the rheostat. Uh, three, you know, there were three knobs that controlled the light and one light, one light that you could press for a blackout. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, that's how we started. And what we learned, we learned the games pretty well, but we were a true improv company. We taught ourselves that there were no bad suggestions and we never left the stage to figure out who's gonna play what. Usually it was a, one person who would say to the audience, Give us an activity. Mm -hmm. Who are these people? Mm -hmm. No proper nouns. Mm -hmm. And where are they? That generally was what they asked for. Mm -hmm. And then we fit them into various games. And usually it was two people. But there were games where somebody can come in. Right. So it could grow to four or five. Mm -hmm. But generally it was two characters. Uh, and I would say what I learned was two things, two big things. I learned how to listen. And as you know, on stage, that's the coin of the realm. If you can listen, you can act. And I have great ears for my mother because she was a piano teacher. So I had great timing. The other thing I learned was how to be calm. Mm. Because Wait, how do you learn how to be calm? Uh, survival. In other words... I'm still trying to learn that. Well, I don't think, I'm not saying I'm calm. I'm talking about on stage okay. or, you know, in front of a camera. Mm -hmm. To me, that's everything. I have to find the calmest place in the room. And then whatever mistakes I make, somebody else called the director will tell me. But my point of view is to listen to the other actor and with lines, not just improv. And we right. work off of each other. I feel you, you feel me. Shakespeare didn't write the actors the thing. He wrote the plays the thing. So you've got a script. And, but improvising is total free fall. And what we, what we learned was, what I just told you I learned, but generally we never commented on, we learned to never comment. Because the audience would say some funny shit. When we said, who are these people? They, they'd say stuff that was hysterical. Mm -hmm. We had to unlearn the temptation 
to acknowledge that it was funny. So in other wow. words, keep a mask. Uh -huh. Don't let the audience know that you are clocking what they're saying. So we had to learn that lesson. And the person introducing the scene, we had to teach ourselves to not comment. Wow, that's really funny. Oh, that's nothing. Like Buster Keaton, nothing, Stonewall. Mm -hmm. And it took about two years in which we had pretty good control about those things. And I would say, modestly, it's one of the best improv companies I've ever seen. Wow. And we were motherfuckers. We were awesome. A friend of mine, Brad, said he was a big fan. He used to go see you. Yeah, and say hi to Brad. But it was, uh, it was life-changing to realize that you can take a suggestion from strangers and once you learn the dynamics of it, remember the audience knows what they've told us. Right. So our advantage is using their knowledge, right? Instead of, there's always a way to twist something, mm -hmm. right? And of course the major lesson in improv is if somebody says you're a surgeon, you're a surgeon. Right, there's no denying in improv. No denying, which of course is one of the great things Anyway, you know, if, if somebody tells you in the theater world, but especially in improv, mm -hmm. you don't get to change. That's the rule. Right. And that's how you share with each other, mm -hmm. you know. And uh, anyway, I, I, I'd say two years. We were just incredible. And, and to hear an audience laugh out of something made up out of nowhere, it, it's a, it was exhilarating. And made and, me, you know, made me think and, I actually could do something. And this really prepared you for what was to come. So, so your first professional gig, if I if I yeah. got this right, you were um, you were Chico, no? Yeah. I, and how I, did how did you get your first like acting? Get your equity, your first equity. My gig? equity card. Uh, one of the actors in the company, Marsha Myers, mm -hmm. brilliant, unbelievable. She had a friend named Louis Stadlin, who played the part of Groucho in Minnie's Boys on Broadway in 1970. So by 1972, when we were performing, mm -hmm. or I guess it was 1973, she brought Louis to see the show. And uh, he had a great time and we, you know, hit it off pretty well. And uh, around that same time, I heard that there was going to be a 10-week summer tour of Minnie's mm -hmm. Boys, mm -hmm. and the part of Groucho was available. And I, well, I knew since I was a kid, I was doing Groucho and Chico and Harpo, because most New Yorkers remember, uh, oh golly, what was it? It was, a t it was on TV. It'll come to me. Anyway, they did nine shows a week of a particular movie. Um, oh, million dollar movie. Yeah, maybe yeah. that was. Yeah, million yeah, dollar million dollar movie. movie. They would replay yeah. the same thing over and yeah. over. Yeah. So I was an insane Groucho and Marx Brothers fan since I was tiny. Duck and, Soup and A Night at the and, Opera. Yeah, all of them. Yeah. Everything. Yeah. yeah. So I was knowledgeable about who they were, and you know, kids imitate. So I used to walk around and pretend I was Groucho Marx, and I prepared to audition for this 10 week show. And then it was eight weeks and then it was six weeks and then it was four weeks. 
finally, it was going to be two weeks. Mm -hmm. And uh, I got a call from the producer mm -hmm. on a particular morning around 10 or 1030. And they called and said, I'd like to, I'd like to speak to Peter Riegert. I said, speaking. They said, uh, we'd like to offer you the part of Chico. I said, who is this? He said, I, I'm the producer of Binny's Boys. And I said, oh, I, I thought I was going to audition for the part of Groucho. And they said, well, Louis Stadlin is going to play Groucho. I said, oh, that's great. So we'd like you to play Chico. And I said, when do you want me to audition? He said, we don't want you to audition. We want to, we want to give you the part of Chico. Wait a minute. Your first legit yeah. role and you're not yeah. auditioning? Wow. Well, that's just dumb luck. So I said, uh, okay. And they said, it was, like I said, I lived in the village. The rehearsal was on Broadway and 50th Street in one of those second floor things, you know, mm -hmm. ballet studios and rehearsal halls. And he said, how soon can you get there? Well, normally I would have said an hour ago, but <laughs> I had to digest what I was just being told. This was my equity card. This was a, a new door opening. Had so you ever I, impersonated Chico? Did you know no. how to, no. Well, I did it to myself vaguely, but on the bus ride up, which would have taken me a half an hour. This is a 1030, so when can you get here? I said, I'm, I just gotta, you know, hop in the shower. And of course, shower, I'm just getting clothes on. I said, I think half an hour. He said, great. So on the bus right up, I'm thinking, all right, I know how to do Groucho. They're brothers. I'll do Groucho with an Italian accent. <laughs> so that was my thinking. So I get there. Their first preview is in five days at the Philadelphia Playhouse in the park. 1600 people in the round. So I get to the rehearsal hall. They give me the script. He opens it up. He said, we're here. And he introduced me to everybody. And now I'm not a singer. I've got a good ear, but learning how to sing eight shows a week, that's a different skill set. But like I said, it was a job and I wasn't going to explain to them what I didn't know. <laughs> And they hadn't heard me sing. They just was watching me out. I can't out. believe they gave you this part without any well, They Unfortunately, uh, um, an actor was playing Chico, uh, had gotten ill. Uh, and so he had to drop out of the, the job. And um, he, so I rehearsed and then we went to Philadelphia and uh, I was introduced to the audience the first night. The improv group came eventually. My folks came. I had family in Philadelphia. And it was, uh, I made, I think it was $325 a week, which of course to me was like, well, I know what nothing money is <laughs> acting, but what's $325 worth of acting? That's where I was going. What if, what if the audience thinks I'm only giving them $187? <laughs> I didn't know what money meant, but it was an equity card. It was my first amount of money. 1,600 people in the round is a lot of people. That's a lot of people. You know, if you worked off off Broadway, if there were 70 people, that was, you know, oh my God. Sure. So that's a big deal. And we all entered from, there were like four entrances from the, mm -hmm. from the, the back. 
was a deep set theater in the round. And I think there was a five piece orchestra. And we opened, uh, whenever we opened. Um, and I guess the funniest part of it all, first of all, it was such a high learning curve because so? the, 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 um, the producer introduced to the audience um, that the actor whose name was Erwin Pearl, who since passed away, uh, couldn't be there that night. He was ill, but we have this incredible actor named Peter Riegert. He's just gonna blow you away. He's fantastic. And Louis Stalin and I are in the back waiting to go on. And Louis said, don't blow it. <laughs> So I said, I'll try. So um, everybody got their playbill. Now there's no time to reprint the playbill. Right. So there was a thin piece of white paper mm -hmm. wedged into where the actors were. Mm -hmm. Peter Riegert and probably a couple of off-off Broadway plays and maybe the high school play. I mean, I had credit, <laughs> I don't know but Peter Riegert, Chico, blah, blah, blah. So we open up to pretty good reviews, as I recall. Mm -hmm. And Charlotte Ray played Minnie, which was fantastic. And uh, there was one more reviewer to come on a Thursday night. And on that particular night, there's a song that the boys sing to each other in, in four, like mm -hmm. right, North, South, East, West. And I think the song was called, Where Was I When They Passed Out Love? Well, each of us had a solo mm -hmm. and it came to me and I hit notes Schoenberg hadn't invented. <laughs> Pancakes coming out of my mouth. I mean, <laughs> now, you know, you're in a musical and I could see all the other guys looking at me like, can't help you, you're on their own. And I'm meandering all over the place to oh. find a goddamn fucking key. <laughs> and you know, it's it's hard enough when there's nobody there, 1,600 people, oh my God. Anyway, long story short, the review comes out the next day. Very laudatory of the whole show. It says, however, Peter Riegert almost brings this show to his knees. He <laughs> was terrible. But here's the funny part. In his program, the note, it, he didn't say Peter Reed, the note with the saying it was me, yeah, flipped out of the playbill. So he blamed the other guy. So Erwin <laughs> Pearl got the worst review of his life. And I apologized to him profusely when I saw him. Oh but my God. It, isn't that amazing how life works? Unbelievable. Wow. And I did it for two weeks and I got my equity card. And, you know, when, Whenever, whenever I get a job, I almost cry because there's so many people to choose from. I feel so lucky whenever I get a job. Okay, so, so I know you did Sexual Perversity in Chicago, which is yeah. an unbelievable play. Yeah, it's incredible. Uh, and you did it, you, did you do the very first production yeah. of it? Well, they had done, the, the improv company, actually we were performing at an off-Broadway off theater called St. Clement's. Mm -hmm. I think it, it was a church, I can't remember. Remember which street it was on. Anyway, David Mamet saw us perform and offered the group sexual perversity. 
And the groups didn't see what it was. And I said, are you nuts? This is incredible. They said, ah, it's a couple of skits. I said, all right, I, you know, whatever. Anyway, it slipped out of my hands. And I had left, I was doing a play called uh, Dance With Me on Broadway at a middle house. That's another story, how I got that job. Anyway, I was down in, in, in uh, Washington, D.C. at the Folger Theater. I was doing Comedy of Errors. I came back and my agent, a guy named Johnny Planko at the William Morris Agency, got me an audition for the part of Danny because they did an off-off-Broadway off version of it mm-hmm. at St. Clemens. Mm-hmm. And when they were going to move it to the Cherry Lane Theater, they replaced the two guys. And uh, F. Murray Abraham was going to play Bernie. And I auditioned and got the part, thank goodness, of Danny. And I did it for eight months at the Cherry Lane. Wow. Well, I made between 110 and 160 bucks a week based on how many people showed up. And it was, it, you know, outside of the improv company and just a lot of good experience. That was just an amazing, uh, an amazing, I don't know if masterclass is too heavy a word, but it was, it was what I thought I was entering. It mm-hmm. wasn't, this was an apprenticeship. That's really what it was. Because David, you have to be meticulous. Mm-hmm. He writes, um, you say, um, right. Because he writes to make it sound like it's being improvised. Right. And you know, as an actor that that's our job mm-hmm. is to take what's written and make it sound like we're making it up as we go along. But it was eight months of, you know, like I said, I lived on Horatio street. I walked to work. I used to go to the Blue Mill Tavern for dinner and Chumley's for drink. Oh my God. To live in New York City back then was unbelievable. Okay, so so we fast forward and, and you do a cut and how you get the first thing you get on TV is you get MASH, right? Yeah. You get a couple episodes. So how do you segue from from Broadway and off Broadway to to Hollywood? How does that happen? Well, uh, during this play, Sexual Perversity. Um, I think it was the middle of October. I'm guessing like a lot of people came to see that play. That was a very- Oh yeah, it was a big deal. Mm-hmm. It was a big deal. Yeah. And um, it, it was so exciting because nobody'd heard language like this. I mean, it was, it was, it was perverse. <laughs> That's what, you know, it was, it was saying to the audience, you're thinking, language is perverse, but it's behavior that's perverse. So anyway, the middle of October, uh, the stage stage manager, some young kid who's working, you know, (laughs) working backstage, comes, you know, running upstairs. The dressing rooms were really tiny. I mean, uh, um, Brian Denny, he showed up one day because he knew Murray. I don't think his head, I think he had a scrounge over (laughs) it. The ceilings were so low. <laughs> anyway, this kid comes running up and he's all a flutter and says, the divine Miss M wants to come and meet you. I mean, mean say hello to Oh, the I kid. didn't know that's when you met. Okay. Yeah. So I knew her from seeing her on the Johnny Carson show mm-hmm. and probably heard her songs, but I didn't really, I'd never seen her work other than like the Johnny Carson show. Right. 
but it was somebody, you know, it meant something. Anyway, she came in the room and we took one look at each other and it was hell's a poppin'. So that's when it started? Oh yeah. Oh, I thought it started when you worked together in Gypsy. Ah. No, 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 that was when we met and uh, 76. Anyway, uh, I said, we're all going to Chumley's and I didn't know she lived on Barrow Street at the time. Mm -hmm. So she lived right around the corner. So we all went out, you know, restaurants stayed out to open till four in the morning. Right. So we were getting smashed out of our head. And uh, anyway, she called me the next day. Oh, she said, are you in the phone book? I said, yeah, I'm in the phone book. She said, how do you spell your name with a W? And I said, W-R-R-R-R-R-R-R-R-R-R-R-R-R-R-R-R-R-R-R-R-R-R-R-R-R-R-R-R-R-R-R-R-R-R-R-R-R-R-R-R-R-R-R-R-R-R-R-R-R-
she had done a show. I think it was Clams on the Half Shell. Sure. And they, HBO recorded it. Mm-hmm. So there, there was a tape of the show. I think it was like two and a half hours. Mm-hmm. So a friend, <coughs> excuse me, a friend of hers had one of the first tape machines and he invited me over to see this show. Now remember, I've never seen her perform. I've only heard her songs. Wait a minute, you're living together and you've never seen her perform? No, she wasn't performing at the time. She was okay. you know, starting to look for songs. and We didn't have VCRs, then you couldn't just do that, okay. No, no, no. Yeah. Okay. So that's why, you know, so it was winter and uh, I can't remember exactly when, you know, December, January, it was like two feet of snow in the village. So I go to this guy's house. You didn't see her on Johnny Carson. You didn't know from her. I did. No, you I remember her on Johnny Carson. Okay, okay. Yeah, she was, that was- So you was, had an inkling of- Oh, no, no, I knew who she yeah. was, but I didn't know what her persona was. I see. Anyway, I watched this show and I, I, I wouldn't say I was afraid of her. I just was in awe of what I had just seen. Sure. This is one of the greatest performers of our generation, of any generation. And it was what was coming out of that videotape was mind blowing. And I know she was concerned that I would be affected by it and run away because it's such strong material. Yeah. And it's just another, it, you know, that's her, that's not the bet I know. That's the bet performer who, I mean, Fearless doesn't even do justice to what she can do. And she's funny and singing and you're crying and you're laughing and it's unbelievable. So I get home and I, you know, she was nervous and I, she didn't say, what did you think? <laughs> you know she knew not to ask that question <laughs> yeah and I just told her I said I I, I can't I'm, I'm going to try and find the words to tell you how brilliant you are you know so it was all new so all now new. was there mutual respect here had she seen you well she saw you in sexual perversity right oh yeah, I, yeah. believe me there would have if she would have thought less anything of, less than actor, brilliant we wouldn't be having this story right right you know, it was right. whatever she saw. You know, sometimes you have to see yourself through others' eyes. Mm. And that's the gift. And so when you started to, when you broke, now you're this hot couple that uh, both have all, all right, so, so how do you get there? So how do you get Animal House? How does that happen? Animal House, uh, you know, I like I said, I was 30, but I looked very young. Mm-hmm. And there was must have been thousands of, you know, young men and women auditioning for these parts. Mm-hmm. And um, I got a call from one of the agents saying, you have this, you know, and they sent me the script. And Bet and I were renting Richard Chamberlain's house up in the Beverly Hills somewhere. A really sweet little place. And we're in bed. It's, you know, we're late night people, you know, right. some people are like mm-hmm. 12 o'clock is appetizers. So, you know, <laughs> we're up late. I'm reading Animal House. And the scene when they shoot the horse, 
I literally fell out of bed. And when I laugh, I have a very high pitched laugh. I sound like a hyena. It's just like ridiculous. <laughs> so we used, you know, we could make each other laugh. I was funny. She was funny. And she said, What's so funny? And I'm going, <laughs> So she reads this script. It's funny. So she called me in. I can't remember the first audition. I can't remember the first audition. Peter, hold I, on one second. I have to go let Rufus in because he's barking. Rufus. Come on, Rufus. Okay, say hello to Peter. Okay. Hello, Rufus. Sorry about that. Here, no problem. We love Rufus. We love Rufus. So I can't remember the first one, but I do remember auditioning with Tim Matheson. And it was, you know, they gave us this like dildo to improvise <laughs> off of. And Tim and I were like immediate. We just bounced off each other. Now I could recognize that feeling because of all that improv. Experience. Sure. So it was, it wasn't a competition. It was just, he was Otter and I was Boone. And then we started riffing on this fucking dildo <laughs> and we're having a high old time. And uh, now Tim had been acting since he was a kid, probably 12, 13, 14. So he knew the business in a way that I had a clue, which came in handy. So then I had a second audition, or maybe that was the second. He the said he, uh, Tim was on the show a few weeks ago. Oh, yeah. he, he knew immediately when he yeah, was yeah. Red it was, I, it, it was one of those things where you, you just think to yourself, why don't they give us the contracts now? I mean, who's going to do better than this? But the fun of it was being so free. And the fortune part of it was that John Landis saw that mm -hmm. because a lot of actors can be free, but it takes the person who's choosing to choose you. And there's no reason why. It's the instinct of the person hiring you because you know, at this level, most of the people are really good. And then as you get older, they get really good because people drop away in their starting in their 30s, mid 30s. And were you aware when you when you got the role, you knew it was a vehicle for John Belushi, I assume? No, I had. Oh, I didn't give a shit about John. I knew John before he was John Belushi. <laughs> he was another actor trying to get work. Mm -hmm. A friend of mine, another girlfriend, different girlfriend had introduced me to John and Judy in the village. Mm -hmm. You know, somewhere I, my vague memory is around, uh, you know, some hamburger joint on West 4th and wherever. Uh-huh. At 7th Avenue. And he just was another actor. Now I knew him from Saturday Night Live, but I was in more babies. We weren't that fucking impressed with that company. <laughs> You know, they failed half the time. Yes, they did. We didn't fail like they failed. Mm -hmm. But props to John. He was a brilliant sketch player. Mm -hmm. And when he, and what was great for John was that Landis surrounded him with an amazing cast. And John, part of what makes him so great is he can recognize talent. So we had a dinner before we even started rehearsing or anything mm -hmm. and it was all of us 
the entire you know animal house. was mark Metcalf invited because i know oh, he, he was... tells the story that he wasn't but <laughs> i i don't believe any of that stuff but maybe it's true i don't know all i know is all of our, us had long hair and beards and mustaches we looked like you know none of us had, we never had a cut yet but we sat around at that table and it was like gunfight of the okay corral everybody was clocking everybody else and nobody was backing down on anybody. Wow. Oh, you're a Bluto? I'll see you on the court, motherfucker. I mean, it was <laughs> awesome. It, it, you know, Tom Hulse and Stephen First and Mark <gasps> Metkin. Every, Karen Allen was it. Kevin Bacon. Kevin Bacon. Everybody yeah. was, nobody, look, even if you're afraid, you don't admit it, or maybe you do, but you're probably drunk. But, you know, you're there with amazing talent. We all felt we deserved to be there. Wait, John, how did your relation, how were you, did they do a chemistry read with you and Karen? Oh, no. Oh, yeah. Actually, I was at Karen's audition. I might have gotten the job. I don't know if Landis had given me the job yet, but there were two actors that he wanted me to read with. One was Karen, and I can't remember who the other actor was. Uh, who was in uh, Mork and Mindy? Pam Dauber. Might have been Pam. Mm -hmm. Might have been Pam. I can't remember. But Karen was Karen at 26. And we just, again, it was like me and Tim. I didn't, acting? What acting? I just had to look in her eyes. She was Absolutely. gorgeous. Absolutely. And also she was, she understood, she, you know, she was ready. Mm -hmm. And Pam was good. I just don't remember. Right. I just remember looking at Karen's, looking at Karen. I don't mean I was not acting. I just meant that's what you act off of. Right. It's sure. the eyes that you get mm -hmm. to see. And that's what I saw on Tim. Mm -hmm. And uh, so at the, after they left, uh, John said, what do you think? And I said, you know, they're really incredibly talented, but this woman, Karen Allen, I mean, she's going to be fighting him off with a fucking stick. She's just incredible. She, she's, I can't imagine what the camera is going to see. And again, no flies on Pam. It's just, right. It was amazing. Mm -hmm. And anyway, so that she got the job soon after. And so now, you know, it sounds like, you know, because Tim said he didn't. Sounds like you knew you were sitting on gold here. No. You did. No, what I did was the script was amazing. Mm -hmm. The cast was amazing, mm -hmm. but there's a long way to go from shooting a film and releasing a film. And on the last day, I think Tim and, and, uh, and Bruce McGill and I were sitting around and mm -hmm. maybe Jamie was there, Jamie Widows. And we were saying, what do you think? Mm -hmm. And our ob observation was, we just hope John Landis knows how to cut because I know what we shot. And John knew what he shot, but you know, you've got to cut it down to about Absolutely. an hour and 40 minutes. And they had, oh my God, the stuff they must've thrown away. And Landis was superb with the script. Mm -hmm. I mean, the guys who wrote it, Chris Miller and Harold Ramis and, and uh, uh, Chris Miller, how, uh, Doug Kenny, they'd never written a screenplay before. I think their first screenplay was like 300 pages. <laughs> so with Landis who really, knew how to shape a film mm -hmm. and he just cast the hell out of it. He sure you know? did. Because originally 
Universal wanted it to be like the Saturday Night Live actors. You know? This is what Tim told me. Yeah. yeah. I think they wanted, they wanted, they wanted Chevy, Chevy Chase, right? They Chevy wanted Chevy. Tim. Mm -hmm. Harold wanted to be me. They wanted Danny Aykroyd to be D Day. Right. And Landis, if you ever talked to him, he knew no fucking way. This is my movie. This is not Saturday Night Live. So he had to go, you know, the, the politics that goes into doing this stuff. It's amazing not only that anything gets made, but that it gets released and it's successful. But nobody, uh, nobody knows what's, you know, what's really happening. So I, we, we knew we had a great script. We knew we had a great cast. And then it's a year, you know, it's eight months later. Who knows what people are going to go see? And that's just one of the dumb luck things that an actor has to stumble upon in order to have a career. So tell us like a favorite scene that you shot or, or something about them. I saw the movie on opening day twice. Oh I mean, God. It was. Yeah. So, for, so filming it. Okay. So you don't know it's what's going to happen with it. Cause you can't know that. Right. But I'm assuming you're having the time of your life filming this thing. Well, it's my first, I did one part in a movie, in the movie Coma, that Michael Douglas started. Mm -hmm. And I was like, a, you know, uh, I was one of the, the uh, um, apprentice doctors mm -hmm. in the scene where the murder takes place. Uh, I think it's a, 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 a screwed up um, abortion or something. Anyway, so there's two actors who are young doctors. One is like 6'4" and I'm 5'8", and I have a mask over my face. So I'm, I'm making, I'm, my eyes are working more like, you know, somebody from film, from the film world. And Landis, when he saw the movie, he, he recognized me and screamed out in the middle of the theater, Peter Rieger. I just, yeah. Anyway, so, and I had done two MASH episodes. So this was the first, but the great thing about the MASH episodes was that it was my first professional crew. We shot it on the lot on Fox. So I understood mm -hmm. what that was like. And I'm a mm -hmm. fast learner. Mm -hmm. But this was a lead in a feature film. Yeah. So I knew, I knew, um, I knew, I've always had an ability to recognize when something interesting is taking place, whether it succeeds or fails. I, I just, it didn't matter to me. You know, you can't control what a success is, mm -hmm. but you can recognize when something amazing is going on. Mm -hmm. And it was amazing from the moment I was auditioning. And then when I got the job, you know, I think we shot from the middle of October to the first week in December. So that's seven weeks of, you know, people say, what was it like? I said, did you have fun at the movie? They said, oh my God, I, uh, I laughed, I did, we screamed. I said, okay, the, the movie's an hour and 40 minutes. That's what it was like every day for seven weeks. <laughs> so did you and Tim, how much did you guys, how much was on the page and how much did you guys play around? Well, John Landis said, bring us, bring me what you've got. It, Can you think of anything that you guys came up with on the spot that wasn't on the page? Uh, really what, 
what it was was how we played off of each other. You know, those things you wouldn't, we, we'd say at the same time, road trip, <laughs> or we'd say uh, whatever. We just, it was just, you know, vamping. It was on the page, but it's- It's, it's the what you did with how it. how you oh, do it. Yeah, yeah, of course. You of know, course. I mean, you can play the ink, but there's, you know, it's like jazz musicians. It's, it's mm -hmm. there, it's just a feel. It's what, it's what makes you fall in love. It's what the audience identifies with. Mm -hmm. Whatever magic is happening in front of them, they're consuming. But you can't, I don't think, I don't think you can tell the audience that they should be having a good time or that they should be moved or they should be anything. They'll figure it out. Right. And John basically created an atmosphere that seemed improvised. Like a lot of people think we made all that up, but it was mostly scripted. Mm -hmm. I mean, Bruce McGill playing his throat. <laughs> that's Bruce saying, well, I can play my throat. And Landis going, the fuck are you talking about? And he played the William Tell overture on his throat and John put it in the movie. And Jamie Widows knew who to juggle. So he juggled, you know. And I saw all these lunatics, what they could do. And I figured, well, I know how to underplay. So if it was like the blank sheet of paper. You guys act your ass off and I'll just stand there and fall in love with Karen Allen. Not so bad. So I would crazy. say, I, I'm sure there's something. It was probably things like, uh, excuse me, pardon me, pardon me, excuse me, you know, imitating <laughs> Bugs Bunny or whatever I was doing. And, uh, I, you know, when I, I'll tell you what I improvised. My costume for when we were in the basement singing Shout, <laughs> I had on an orange uh, sweater with the initial P, looked like a Princeton sweater and dark glasses, and I was singing into a beer bottle. Yes, you were that being honest, yeah. That was my contribution. <laughs> and people would say to me, why are you wearing an orange sweater with the letter P? I said, P for Peter. <laughs> I'm trying to make an impression here. <laughs> so that was, uh, and orange is my favorite color. So, you know, those are the nutty things that you bring to it, but, you know, I grew up on that music. Even Belushi didn't know about all that music. He was really? learning. Yeah, he was giving himself a master course in blues through Danny Aykroyd. Mm -hmm. And, but, uh, you know, that was my time, 1962. I was 15. I mean, that's when the movie took place. You know, I was 15. So I remember that. And of course I went to college. I didn't go into a fraternity. I, I was, was gonna ask that, yeah. No, no, you didn't go in, you know, Jewish boys weren't in fraternities. Oh, no. Oh, no. big time. Oh, big really? time. Oh, my God. Hey, no. Sammy, big, big time. Absolutely. The thing that's funny about Animal House is everybody thinks it's a fraternity movie. But in Landis's mind, it's an anti-fraternity movie. He was says he was making a movie about fraternalism. That's mm -hmm. why the Animal House never excluded anybody. You know, Doug Kenny has that great line, need the do's. <laughs> they, that was the, the setup. Mm -hmm. Mark, Medfit, Mark Medcalf represented fraternities right. that rejected people. Mm -hmm. Our fraternity couldn't afford to reject anybody because we were such losers. <laughs> but that was the dynamic. 
the animals against the, you know, against the Nazis. The Nazis. Yeah, <laughs> the Hitler youth versus the <laughs> So, so at what point the movie ends? Okay, Bets is she doing the rose already? When you're when you're. Bet had gone. No, uh, she did the rose in seventy eight. Yeah, but that's when Animal House comes out. No. Oh, Animal so, House comes out in 78. Yeah. And I think she made the rose in 78 and it came out in 79. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So now Animal House comes out. I imagine mm -hmm. your life changes pretty quickly. Well, it did, but I remember it was a different time. Mm -hmm. I could I could walk around. Mm -hmm. No one was bothering me. The paparazzi didn't exist like it does now. Even when they you were, were with Bet, you could walk around? Well, first no. of all, Beth dressed like Beth. Like she would come and see me for dinner. She lived on Barrow, we lived on Barrow, and I we'd meet for dinner after the show. Because mm -hmm. on Saturday I had two shows. Right. I had a seven o'clock and a ten o'clock, or an eight o'clock and a ten o'clock. So between shows, or sometimes just after, or sometimes you just walk over there, mm -hmm. the Blue Mill Tavern, and for like seven bucks and, and a little bit more, you can get dinner and a glass of wine. Mm -hmm. So I was in heaven. I was getting paid. I was getting laid. Everything was doing good. <laughs> so we're having dinner together. And somebody who had seen the show came over and introduced themselves and never looked at Beth. You know how this works. Because she was looking at me. I was the actor from the play. So she's not looking at my partner. And she's telling me how much she loved the play and I blah and compliments and you're terrific. I said, oh, thank you very much. What's your name? And she said, her name was Joan. I said, Joan, it's nice to meet you. This is Bette Midler. Bette, this is Joan. And, you know, <laughs> mouth hit the floor. But, you know, Bette, Bette didn't dress or it still does. I haven't seen her in a couple of years. Did but, Bette take that in stride? Oh, like that. <laughs> she was thrilled. You know, you were she, getting recognized. Yeah. yeah. Well, she was happy I was getting recognized, but she was also happy she wasn't. Right. But I was doing, I was not going to let, yeah, I wasn't being rude. I just wanted to remind her that there's somebody else over here. I hate, when people, I hate when people do that stuff and ignore the other people. Yeah, you know, it's, I, I, I get it, it's human nature, yeah. but Bet never dressed. I didn't, I don't think it, it's, she dressed down, but she wasn't I, divine Miss M when she went right, out. Nobody right. could recognize her. Mm -hmm. She's this tiny little five foot one powerhouse. You know, people would meet her after the show and they thought she was six feet. She's tiny. Anyway, so. By so, the way, the only show I have ever stood to see was Bet in Hello, Dolly a few years ago with my I, daughter. You know, it's the I only time I have yeah. ever stood. Yeah, yeah. Well, she's. You know, no, I mean, I stood, I did standing room only because I couldn't get it. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I mean, right. never. You should be able to do that. I think you still can. You can well, second yeah, this was just show. a few. This was just a few years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I would say um, it was new. It was exciting. It was weird. Okay, so when does life start changing? So the, the film comes, so now, okay, so you make the movie. Right. What are you doing right before it comes out? What 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 happens to you right after that? What's the uh, next thing you do? I can't remember. Mm -hmm. I can't remember. We were out in LA. I was working with my improv company. Okay. The group had moved out to Los Angeles mm -hmm. and they were working at a theater called the Cast Theater. 
-hmm. which was right in the neighborhood of Paramount Pictures. Mm -hmm. Charlie Chaplin built that theater, I think, if I'm mm -hmm. not mistaken. And uh, so I had a place to work. And um, I don't really remember a lot of work other than I did. I might have done a couple of plays. I can't remember. And of course, doing a play in Los Angeles is like ridiculous because <laughs> everybody's calling their agent to get a movie or a television show. Right. So, but I. How was, soon is it until Animal House comes out? And how soon after it? I mean, I'm imagining. I mean, I saw it twice on opening day. It, it, hit, it, it hit Fast and Furious, no? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, that's the thing, you know, to be alive at the moment when something happens. It's like when we all saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan show or Elvis Presley on the Ed Sullivan show. You know where you were because it was like getting whacked by something. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I still have kids coming up to me telling me, you know, I really, you know, you changed my life. I mean, it's generations of kids who went to college yes. thinking that's what college was like. Mm -hmm. And um, I would say, we went, Bet and I went to the cast and crew screening on a theater on Sunset Boulevard. I can't remember the movie theater. Sunset, and I don't know. Anyway, we were in the front row. Well, you know, we're, we're like this. Why are you in the front row? Because they were, those were the only seats we could get. <laughs> you know, it, it was everything. It was know, packed. It yeah. was packed. Everybody was there. It, the, the stars were out. The word had gotten out that this, you want to go and see this. Mm -hmm. And cast and crew screenings are notoriously crazy mm -hmm. because everybody gets to see what they did. Mm -hmm. But none of us were prepared for this. And, you know, you're, you're looking at your head at 40 foot <laughs> wide. And it was an awesome experience. And Bet couldn't have been more generous. And people are coming over to both of us and being very complimentary. And uh, that was probably June of 78. Then we went to the opening in New York on a theater on 44th Street off of Broadway. And, uh, you know, we, we were late. We were late. And they knew that we were late. And we came in and Bet looked awesome. And I was looking awesome next to her. And we walked to our little seats and crowd cheered, lights went down and bango. And this were, this was still not a, the real, you know, there's a lot of people who come to the openings who are guests. So it's not a true test, but it was a good test. Right. But I heard something that helped you know, you, you, everybody needs to be reminded that they're mortal. And, you know, you come out of a movie like that, your head is starting to grow. <laughs> and I hear this guy say, I got a Peter Regal. Not Peter Regal, you know, the autograph house. And this guy goes, Peter Regal? Who the fuck is Peter Regal? I got a Gary Cooper. And, you know, your head suddenly goes, oh, right, <laughs> Gary Cooper. Peter Regal. And that was like, that was great. And then Bette and I took a, a holiday because we were exhausted from all, you know, doing all the press and everything. We went to Nantucket and we had a ball. She, there were lots of people she knew there. 
designers and you know amazing people from mm -hmm. the theater and the movies that she knew. I mean, she really had knowledge of all this stuff. And we came back to New York on a Sunday. And I can't remember the name of the movie, but if the theater, Animal House was playing on at the Sutton Theater on 57th Street. And we were going to see a theater. I can't remember. It's one of those smaller theaters. Mm -hmm. And I want to say Water for Chocolate, but I can't remember. Anyway, we, we, we misread the time to go to the movie. Mm -hmm. So we get to the movie and we looked at each other and we had, shit, we got 45 minutes. What do you want to do? I said, let's go see if there's anybody looking at Animal House. She said, yeah, sure. So we walked the corner and I, I've been gone for a weekend. I'm in Nantucket. I don't know what's right, going on. Right, right. Right? This thing is happening. I don't know from it. No one's texting me. I don't have a phone. <laughs> we walk around the corner and there's four ushers, four black guys smoking, you know, smoking their cigarettes and probably some marijuana mm -hmm. in between. And I get, we're, me and Ben are walking up and they see me coming and they go, boom. <laughs> and I, in my head, I'm going, they know my character's name already? What the fuck? So Bet and I, and she was hysterical because she realized what was going on. Right. And it's not like they said, <laughs> oh, and the divine, you know, it was just like they were into this movie. Mm -hmm. They'd probably seen God knows how many times. So we walk into the movie theater and you open a door, I think, and the horse had just been shot. And <laughs> the, the scene that I fell on the floor. Right. Came, the noise that came out of that theater. <laughs> you know, when you're on stage, I've heard amazing laughter. But you but when hear, you're in the back of the house. Yeah. Because when you're on stage, you can't you can't give up your character. Right. You have to you have to ride the wave so that the you know when the wave is doing this, then you throw your line and all that stuff we've learned how to do. But this is the first time I'm in a movie theater. I've been in movie theaters laughing my whole life, but this was me. So my knees were banging together. I was like over the moon. It was awesome. And then we went to see the movie we came to see. And I, you know, then I was aware of what was happening, but I didn't know how to use it. Okay, so yeah, so what happened after that? So after Animal House, what happens to you? Uh, I got a movie uh, that John Ritter was starring in called Americathon, mm -hmm. which was based on a, a skit that the Firesign Theater wrote, mm -hmm. guys who created Firesign Theater. And it was filled with wonderful, the, the premise was that the, uh, America was in debt to an American Indian. Remember, this was the gas crisis and all that other stuff. Mm. And the American Indian was played by Chief Dan George, who was in Little Big Man. Mm -hmm. And he was calling in his marker. And no, everybody lived in their car and everybody wore running suits. The concept was brilliant, but it was really a sketch, not a movie. Mm -hmm. But Harvey Corman was in it and John Ritter was in it. Everybody that you know and love from that era was in it. And I, I made a mistake uh, in my choice of characterization. I should have been more hostile 
as a character instead of laid back. Mm -hmm. And I learned a lot as you do mm -hmm. from a failure. But mm -hmm. uh, then, then um, I think Bet was on tour already. Uh, uh, she had a, a small, well, it wasn't a small tour. It was a European tour and then she mm -hmm. went to Australia and I visited her in England and- uh, Has Animal House exploded I, over there? Yeah, I think so, I mm -hmm. think so. And anyway, she invited me to go to Australia and I said, I gotta, you know, I'm an act, I gotta try and get a job. It was a big mistake not going, not because of anything mm -hmm. that happened, just mm -hmm. who, how do you, you know, fly to Australia? I'd never been to Australia. But uh, then I got, that's when I met Mark. When I met Mark in 77, he told me he and um, Amy Robinson and Griffin Dunn had option uh, and Beatty's book, Chilly Scenes of Winter. What a great So he told me about that. And I think he might've said, read the book, there's a part for you in it. And uh, I did. And the movie didn't, and the opportunity didn't come along for a while, but I shot that in February of 79 in Salt Lake City oh. and, uh, or outside Salt Lake City. And uh, it came out in November of 79. And it is with Gloria Graham, Wonderful and film. John Hurd and Mary Beth Hurd and Kenny McMillan. I mean, amazing cast. And Joe, my first uh, movie with Joe Mecklen Silver. And from that, I got Crossing the Land. Okay, we have to we have to we have to talk about Crossing the Land. Um, they're writing. Don't forget Crossing the Land. Don't forget Local Hero. I'm not going to forget. So so. I'm just telling my wife. I'm still talking. Tell her you're still talking, and I'm sorry. And I'll try to. I'll try to move. No, 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 no. She's swifter pace. No, no. She knows what I do. So not to worry. Uh, I love that you check in with your wife. You're so sweet. That's me. My uh, wife's asking me if I'm done, and I'm not answering him. Okay. So where were we? So crossing Galancy. So yeah. so how do you get how? Do you know when you read Crossing the Lands? Okay, is that offered to you? Do you audition for it? What happens? Uh, actually, I had gotten sent the play, which was written by Susan Sandler. She sent it to me a couple of years before, mm -hmm. and they were doing a play, maybe three years before. And I said, I'm very flattered. This is, looks really beautifully written, but I'm, I have a conflict. I can't do it. So she, I think she sent me a postcard saying, well, maybe you'll do the movie. And I said, I would be so lucky. And then three years later, uh, my memory- So she saw you for it right away. You were her first Writer voice. did, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, that, you know, there's a big distance from what the writer thinks and the movie people think. So, yes. but uh, Joan called me, we, were, we shot the movie in October, of 97, I think. 87. I mean, uh, 87, yeah. Yeah. And uh, so she, I think she offered it to me in August. Mm -hmm. I don't think Amy was involved yet. And I don't know if Razel Buzik, who played the grandma, oh. hired yet. Anyway, so I read the script and I said, Joan, of course, I'm, I'm moved beyond moved. And uh, um, 
uh, yeah, it's very, it is a very moving thing for, to have somebody say, I'd like you to play this part, any part, doesn't matter. You know, I hadn't seen it in a long, I, I saw it 50 times when it came out, but I hadn't seen it in a long time and I just watched it oh. and it has, it totally holds up. I was yeah, shocked. It holds up very well. I wasn't expecting it to, but it did. Well, um, it's, it's, it's a universal story. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a, a great love story. It is recognizable because it's about, you know, what's, what's the song from Casablanca? It's still the same old story, a fight for love and glory. Nothing, but it was a Jewish new. one, which well, that at the time, ridiculous. you know, Woody Allen was kind of doing Jewish. Yeah. There wasn't a lot of Jewish stuff going on back then. Well, there certainly wasn't a character like that. No. You know, that guy was a great character. Yes. I was. mean, not just for women, men too. Mm-hmm. Uh, from every persuasion, people love characters who know who they are Mm -hmm. and that's who that guy was Mm -hmm. you know it's a very it's it's hard to play you know the character essentially is a mensch and a mensch is unsub unsub is not aware of his menschness or her menschness doesn't matter so the trick of playing a character like that is to just let let him see you but you don't know how that's going to come across. So now you were up on board first. Did they do a chemistry read with you and Amy? How did that happen? I think just, no, I think it was Joan's instinct that Amy would be the right person. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know that Amy auditioned with Razel, who was, you know played the Bozhik. She was amazing. I mean, uh, Bozhik who played the Bobby. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't remember. So did you and Amy have that chemistry immediately or did it develop? No, no, it, well, we did. It was a different but kind of- But the characters of didn't really have chemistry at the beginning, so that would- Well, kinda... one of them knew. One of the them. The other one didn't know, mm-hmm. which was what makes a really good love story. Mm-hmm. Somebody in the couple has to not recognize that they're actually falling in love. Right. And that's the, what happens in the, in the length of a movie. It's like a magic trick, you know? It's, but you can't- it's, it's not an actable thing. It's the accident of relationships. That's, you know, Joan's casting eye and she can write like hell too. I mean, Susan wrote the screenplay, mm-hmm. but Joan is a great screenwriter on her own right. Mm-hmm. And she can cast, oh my God, her, her actors are, have you seen Hester Street recently? Hester Street is fantastic. I haven't seen it, it in a long time. I'm, check it out. It will blow your mind. I hadn't seen it, you know, I spoke at Jones Memorial, mm-hmm. so I wanted to catch up, and I couldn't believe, I remembered what I felt when I saw it in Car- 19- was that, Wasn't that Carol Kane? Was Carol oh, Kane? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. 21, she was nominated for an Academy Award. They made the movie for less than $400,000 in black and white mm-hmm. with Yiddish. I mean, <laughs> madness. But uh, I would say chemistry is not hireable. Chemistry is just the result mm-hmm. of picking the right people. Mm-hmm. You know, Tim and I had chemistry. One of my favorite scenes in Animal House is the five or six guys dancing to uh, Louie Louie. 
we're not talking and we're just drunk and banging heads to each other. And it tells you so much. You, you literally- I can feel, picture every second yeah. of that in my head, sure. But in, in the audience, you just want to be with them. Yes, yes. And you, you, know, you root for the couple. And, but somebody has to not get it until they get it. So now at that time, Amy had already done, I believe, Honeysuckle Rose with Willie Nelson. She I was think already, so. Oh, she'd yeah. already done that, which was huge. Yeah. And, and wasn't Steven Spielberg her boyfriend at the time? Oh, they were married. Oh, they were already married. Okay. Yeah, I think they had a son named Max, maybe. Oh, right, right, right. Yes, yeah. okay, of course. So, so you do that movie, and I'm guessing, are you still with Bette? uh no we broke up the end of like 80 beginning of i was 80. gonna say you need to be single after crossing delancey because i'm thinking you're gonna get a lot of action after that movie let's put it this way i could have stuck myself from the manhattan <laughs> island to the redwood forest i've never been so propositioned in my life i bet but i was a very loyal boyfriend so oh you had a girlfriend at the time yeah. okay so, right. uh, huh? So, oh, go ahead. Finish what you no, were No, what was the question? Oh, so I was going to move on. I was going to go to Local Hero. I know your wife's waiting on you. So, no, so no, Local she's... Hero, Local Hero I, I just watched that again, too. Um, how does that, do you know what you're sitting on in that? I mean, because that's a small little movie. Or, I knew, again, I knew what the script was. Mm -hmm. this, is, this is a great story. Mm -hmm. And then we'll probably have exhausted your audience. But this, for people who are interested in how these things happen, mm -hmm. I told you that I'm very aware of when something is happening and it's interesting. Mm -hmm. I don't know where the road's going to go. Mm -hmm. Maybe it'll come to a dead end. Mm -hmm. But um, this is how I got local here. In 1977, I was living mm -hmm. with Beth. And she was about to do an interview with a reporter named Joan Goodman, who was writing for a British newspaper. Mm -hmm. And she was getting made up and getting her hair done because there were going to be pictures. It's going to be a big spread. So Beth asked, would I entertain Joan? And I'm sure we spent maybe an hour together, just making small talk. Um, I don't think Animal House had come out yet. I just was Beth's boyfriend, you know, so mm -hmm. we're talking. All right, five years later, same woman, Joan Goodman, is interviewing Bill Forsyth when Gregory's Girl was being released. Mm -hmm. And it was just about to be released in America. It was a big deal in Britain. Mm -hmm. And she says, as all reporters do, what's next? And he said, I'm, I'm doing a movie with David Putnam. It's called Local Hero. And she said, what's it about? And he described the story and it described my character. And she said, this is Joan Goodman. This is the woman from five years earlier. Right. And you were just Beth, said, Beth's boyfriend at the time. Yeah. But she said, because now Animal House has come out. Uh, other things have come out. I've been mm -hmm. on Broadway. Mm -hmm. and she said to Bill, you ought to interview, you ought to meet Peter Rieger. So she. Wow. My name. He gave it to the casting people. And uh, I got a call from my agent saying, there's a script we're going to send you. It's called Local Hero. It takes place in Scotland. 
There's a new director from Scotland named Bill Forsyth. Burt Lancaster may be involved. We're not really sure. And, you know, I grew up watching Burt Lancaster. I was going to say, you had to be a fan. I know who he was. Plenty of stories there. So I get the script on a Monday. And American scripts are 8 by 11. Mm-hmm. British scripts are like 8 by 11, 8 by 13. I mean, they're huge. They're these big, long things. And I always read before I go to sleep. So this is a Monday. And I'm footloose and fancy free and tearing New York apart and having great night. And I get home at, I don't know, 5.30. And I'm staying, I'm subletting Carol Kane's apartment on 67th Street, right off of Central Park West. She had an amazing artist's Mm -hmm. apartment. Mm -hmm. I mean, Carol has such great taste. So I start reading this enormous screenplay called Local Hero. Mm -hmm. And two hours later, it's 7.30, and I'm going, this is the best screenplay I've ever read. This is unbelievable. Well, there's no, there's no agents awake at 7.30 in the morning. So there's, I'm just like lit up, like I had 10 <laughs> cups of coffee. So that's a Monday. So I say, when can I meet this guy? And they say, he's coming to New York on Thursday. He's auditioning actors in Los Angeles. And I'm going, oh God, he's going to find somebody. Now I know all this now. So this is why right. I can tell this story. Anyway, he comes east and I meet him at six o'clock at a hotel that's no longer there anymore on 62nd and Riverside Drive in the bar, which was this, I think it was called the Century Club or something like that. And it was a big rock and roll hangout, an actor show business hangout. And I don't know what he looks like. I hope he knows what I look like. So I'm looking around, I don't know. I see somebody at the bar wearing kind of a blue green glowing leather jacket. And I'm going, I don't know. So I go up and I say, hi, are you Bill? I'm Peter. And he says, and he's, you know, with a, he, he's from Glasgow. So his accent is so thick. I, you know, he's talking English. I don't know what he's saying. So we sit down, he says, let's, let's have a seat. And we sit down. And uh, this is my chance. You know, he, I don't, it's just a meeting, no audition. I'm just meeting him. And he says to me, now this is a horrible accent, but we're talking for like 15 minutes. And the, the, uh, there was a, a, a it, it's where the MG, it's where the Warner Brothers is now. There used to be a place there where there were car shows and um, the Coliseum, I think it was. Anyway, this was around the time, uh, this was in January, end of January. So it was the car show. And in the hotel were all the models who were staying at the car show. So Bill says to me, I'm trying to get a job. And I'm watching him kind of look around and I'm doing my best. And he says, "Um, do you know any of these girls over here? And I said, what? He said, there, there seemed to be a disproportionate number of really attractive women. And I wondered if you knew of any of them. I said, no, I don't know. They're models from the car show. He said, but you're from New York. Don't, you must know some of these women. And I said, I don't know. They're, I don't know these people. Are you sure? And I'm going, oh my fucking God, I'm going to lose this job because he wants to get laid. I, I understand it. 
but I want a job. Anyway, we're talking and I keep yakking away. And he says, um, I said, can I take you out for drinks later? And he said, um, okay, or I said, maybe dinner. He said, no, I've got, you know, I've got some other people to meet. And I went, <laughs> yeah, I know, actors. He said, yeah, I've got some other actors to meet. And he's, you know, he does, you know, he's from Glasgow. So <laughs> I said, I'll come by and I'll buy you a drink. So I get back at 11 o'clock at night and he's surrounded by models. <laughs> he's, you know, he's so seductive. And I'm thinking, son of a gun, this is unbelievable. So I jump in and we're talking. And I said, can I take you out to dinner tomorrow night, Friday? He said, nah, I, I've got to see some other actors. I said, oh, okay, all right. How about Saturday? He said, I've got to see some other actors. I said, I'm going to take you. When do you have to go home? He says, Sunday. He said, come on, I'll pick you up. When you're done, you tell me and I'll take you. We'll go out drinking. He said, great. So I come and pick him up at his hotel, same place. What day is this? This is a Saturday now, right? Okay. I met him on a Thursday, it's Saturday. Mm -hmm. And where do I take him? I take him to an actor hangout called Cafe Central on 75th oh. in Amsterdam. Scott Krantz is going, ask, say hi. Hey, hi. <laughs> so so I, I thought I'll take him to a place that'll be really exciting. And then the other part of me goes, you asshole, there's other there's actors. There's other actors. You don't want to take him to a place with actors. So we go in and there's like two godfathers and a consigliere. And I mean, it's like ridiculous. Anyway, I take him home at four o'clock in the morning because I figured if I can get him drunk enough, I'll be the last thing he remembers or the last actor he remembers. So I say goodnight. He flies home Sunday to Glasgow. Now, what I didn't know at the time was Warner Brothers wanted either Henry Winkler, Robin Williams, and Michael Douglas was a big consideration too, I think. I know Michael told me he really wanted the part. Anyway, when he got back to uh, Glasgow, all of his friends, I mean, half the crew is gonna be uh, from Scotland, which is a big deal. Right. Um, and, you know, the people he made Gregory's Girl with, Mm -hmm. And that sinking feeling with mm -hmm. all his buddies from the Glasgow Sits Theater. Um, they said, is it going to be Henry or is it going to be Robin? And he said, I, I think I found this fellow named Peter Egert. I think he's I think he's the right guy. And they thought, oh, Bill, what are you <laughs> fucking crazy? This is Warner Brothers. This is he's going to you know, this is Bill being self-destructive in their head. They're saying this. And uh, I'm telling this story because he knew that weekend. So I was going out to Los Angeles and he had a screening set up for me for Gregory's Girl. My concern was, can the guy who wrote this direct this? Because I'd never seen Gregory's Girl. I didn't know who he was. Mm -hmm. I saw Gregory's Girl and I just, I just went, oh my God, oh my God, this is, I don't know if I'm going to get this job, but oh my God. And my agent out in LA was a wonderful legend named Eddie Bookham Dead or Alive Bondi because he <laughs> he'd once gotten an actress a job who'd been dead for six months. <laughs> and he was really pissed that she was dead because it's the most money she ever made. 
anyway, Eddie called me up and he had had a conversation with uh, David Putnam, mm -hmm. who was a big deal. He's just about to win for Chariots of Fire for, you know, a, a, an Oscar. An Oscar. Mm -hmm. So uh, David told Eddie, you know, Bill is really interested in Peter, but I've got some politics I have to play and it's gonna take about two months. So Eddie told me this story. He said, you know, I, I think he's telling the truth, but we're gonna have to wait two months. So this is how incredible this is. It's now March, the end of March. Belushi has died and there's a memorial at, at uh, St. John the Divine on 110th and Amsterdam. And I heard. You know, we're all there. And after it's over, Bruce McGill and, um, oh my God, uh, you're so vain. Um, Carly Simon. Carly Simon. Bruce and Carly and I walk from 110th Street commiserating about our friend, our colleague, and our you know band of brother. And we go to Cafe Central and drown our sorrows. And it was an amazing day. Local hero, show bit, nothing existed other than the human tragedy. Right. So I get home. I'll see if I get the days right. But let's let's say it's on a Wednesday. And I get a call around 10:30 at night from Joan Goodman, the woman who recommended me. Right. And she was calling to congratulate me. That, that Susie Figgis, the casting director in England, London, told her that they were gonna hire me. So she was calling me up to congratulate. Before you even knew. This is 10 o'clock at night. And I said, well, um, uh, nobody's told me. Are you sure? I, no, I didn't even say, are you sure? I just said, that's really sweet of you, Joan, but no one's told me yet. And she said, oh my God, I hope I haven't done anything wrong. And, you know, I don't want to jinx this. And I'm so, oh, I'm so sorry. I said, no, 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 that's very sweet of you. You started this. So, you know, you're the one I, if this works out, but you know, I'm experienced enough to know these things are really weird. Mm -hmm. Anyway, we finished the phone calls again, like 7.30 in the morning. I'm not calling my agent at 10.30 at night. They're not interested, you know? And so I go out and to the Cafe Central because I got to be amongst my crazy <laughs> tribe. And I get back home to, you know, Carol's apartment and I can't even remember the night because I must have been so, I, could, I couldn't tell anybody because, you know, right. the, you know, Kinahora from our tribe, you don't speak about uh, nothing. You have to give it a poo-poo. Yeah. Give it a poo-poo. <laughs> so the next day I get a call. Nobody knows Kinahora, by the way. I say Kinahora and even Jews don't know what that is. It freaks me out. Anyway, go ahead. A lost phrase. It's, it's the Bronx. It's, it's, it's the Bronx. You have to be. No, I Jews know that word. That's a big word. But I mean, it's like Bellocchio for the Italians, you know, the evil eye. So the next day, I get a call from Bill for sight saying, uh, I'm coming into the city. Let's have drinks at the Carlisle Hotel around six o'clock. And I said, Great. And we talked for a few minutes, you know, how's things, blah, blah, blah. We hang up. 
he didn't tell me I got the job. He just said, let's meet for drinks. Mm -hmm. Well, and I'm thinking, what does that mean? What world have I entered? Is Scotland like some strange, weird, pixelated place? <laughs> then I get a call from David Putnam's office, like an hour later. David's coming into town on uh, whatever the day was. And he wants to meet you and Bill, have drinks with you and Bill at the Carlisle at six o'clock. And they hang up and again, I don't know, maybe they just like drinking and they don't like, I don't know. No, come on, at this point, you, you, you sense that something good's gonna happen. No, I have no sense. You All don't. I know is somebody told me, until you get it, you ain't got it. Right. And that's just the law of the land. Yeah. So I go to the Carlisle, one of the great bars, Bettelman's Bar, you know, mm -hmm. and it's just amazing. And I'm sitting, I go in and there's Bill and there's David, who I've never met. And there's Mark Knopfler, who's going to write the music to Local Hero. So I'm sitting at the table with the lead of Dire Straits, who I love, David Putnam, who obviously knows how to produce, and this weird guy <laughs> who wrote an amazing script and can't be understood. So we're sitting around and talking and making small talk. And Mark says, I have to excuse myself. I'm making an album at the Hit Factory and I got to get back to work. And he looks at me and he says, I'll see you in Scotland. You're going to be fantastic. That's how you find out. Well, the two guys I want to hear say anything still haven't said anything. <laughs> so I say, okay, Mark, it's nice meeting you. Really so you're good. still not 100%. You know when I got a job? When you show up and there's a camera. That's when you know up you got a job. <laughs> anyway, we're making you know, ah, yada, 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 yada. David says, let's go up to my room. So we go up to the room. And it's David and me and Bill. And we're making small talk. And finally, I said, because it's now two months later. And I said, David, I, you know, I know that you guys, are, it's always a lot of pressure. But... Um, do you know when you might know whether I have this job? And David said, uh, he said, uh, oh, this was a Wednesday. He said, I'll know by Friday. Right? I don't have this job. He said, I'll know by Friday. This is how thick with suspense everything is. Wow. You can have your fantasy, but that ain't reality. Wow. So we make some more small talk. And I said, Friday's great. And I really want to thank you for considering me so much for this part. It really means a lot to me. And do you know at this point that Michael Douglas had wants it? And no, no, I don't know any You of don't know. Michael told me, but I don't know any. Okay. Uh-oh, you froze. Uh, I think you're there you oh, there you are. So Bill says at the door, uh, let's get a drink. And I, Scotland drinking, okay. So I say goodnight to Dave and we go back and neither one of us are talking. We just get in the elevator. Bill is very shy. He makes shy look like loquacious. He's <laughs> shy. So we go back down to the bar and we sit opposite each other and the waiter comes over, waitress, whatever, whoever it was, what would you like? And I figure, all right, I'll have a single malt whiskey. And I said to Bill, you got one you can recommend? And he recommended. So the Drinks come back, you know, five, 10 minutes later. And the next words Bill says is, or are, I didn't know you didn't know. And I said, know what, Bill? 
I didn't know you didn't know you've got the job. I said, Bill, no one's told me I have the job. He said, well, I'm telling you, you have the job. I said, you know, Bill, it's Warner Brothers. It's Hollywood. I'm beyond thrilled that you would like to hire me. But I've done this long enough to know there's so many t twists and turns. Uh, and so he said, never heard this said before. He said, I wrote it. I wrote it. I'm directing it. If, you, if you're not in it, it's no movie. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's one of life's great moments. Wow. Well, I knew when I read that script, I don't know if I'm going to get this job, but my things stick for me. So, uh, the reason I can tell this story so detailed, like an anecdote should be, is because I knew I what I was experiencing. Yeah, I knew what I was experiencing was sui generis. This just doesn't happen. And anyway, it, it went on to be, uh, the, you know, it was a seminal moment. I'll have as good, I'll never have better. But it was an amazing, amazing time. And it's, I, I, sh I should only say, that's how special it was. Mm -hmm. There's always jobs that in their moment are special. Mm -hmm. You know, they don't have less of a place to me. Mm -hmm. It's just that the, the dynamic of how we get work is so peculiar. You know, I've never met anybody from the biggest to the smallest who doesn't occasionally go, how the fuck did I get here? You know? And at least if they're saying they should be asking that question. But it was, it was everybody I met was, I didn't have to act. The townspeople, you know, mostly my part is reacting. Mm -hmm. I'm reacting to the scenery. Mm -hmm. I'm reacting to the people. Well, the scenery spoke for itself. But all the actors, we all lived in a roadhouse on the road to the aisles. So every time I came home from work, there was the village. And we all became friends. And we, you know, same kind of thing you were asking before. Your, my goal is to find the intimacy between the other actors. Mm -hmm. I mean, if we're in, in playing characters in a story, that you're an interviewer and I'm an actor, but Vicky has to talk to Peter. Mm -hmm. You know, we may have a character name. You may be Joan and I may be Bob. Mm -hmm. But if you and I aren't talking to each other, mm -hmm. the audience can't make the leap. Mm -hmm. At least that's my feeling. Mm -hmm. So all of that improv stuff that I learned, that is what I'm looking for. I'm not looking for great improvisers. I'm looking for great connectedness. Connectedness. And and also the transformation that the character made that you, that your character made yeah. throughout that film yeah. is a very quiet. It's very quiet. It's very internal. And we get to what we watch it happen. We don't hear it happen. We're not told it's we're not, it's not tell. It's all show. It's well, all I'm show. I'm essentially the audience. Mm -hmm. What happens to the audience is what happens to me. 
And that's why I was saying, learning how to listen from the improv experience. If you can listen, first of all, look at the cast. All right, so I was just gonna, before we move on, because the one last thing I'm gonna ask you about is The Sopranos, but working with Burt Lancaster, and I mean, having watched him as a kid, and now here is this giant, um, what, what, was, what was he like to work with? So this is how I met Burt Lancaster. We got a television in 1952. And this was a big deal. So my folks, my sister was two, so she mm -hmm. was asleep. So we're gonna watch this TV show. What is mm -hmm. it? What's a TV? It's a television. What's a television? It's like a movie, but we can do it in the house. <laughs> so they, they, the first thing they showed me, mm -hmm. or we all saw it together and it was live, mm -hmm. was a variety show. And this is what I remember. There was a young black man doing impressions of people who I didn't know who they were and I didn't know he was. He was doing impressions of Kirk Douglas arguing with Burt Lancaster and it was Sammy Davis Jr. I didn't know who any of these people were. And my parents are laughing like you are, screaming, rolling. And I said, why is that funny? And they said, well, he's doing impressions. And I said, what's an impression? I'm five. I don't know anything. Right, right. So blah, 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 Burt Lancaster. Then I'm getting older and I'm watching Million Dollar Movie and I'm seeing, you know, all this stuff. In 1963, I went to the March on Washington with my cousin, uh, um, Dottie Hardy, who's my mom's favorite cousin. You know, 250,000 people. It's, do I, you know, I have a dream. Usually my parents would go to these things, but mm -hmm. they didn't, for some reason, I went with uh, body. So I get home probably late that night. I don't think we stayed over in Washington. So we took a train back, you know, and uh, my folks said they saw it on television. I said, oh, how, what was it like? They said, well, you made history. Well, they knew I made history. I didn't know I made history. And neither did most of the world know that we'd made history. Okay. But they told me, you know, they were teaching me from when I was very little, what is racism, what is segregation, what is Jim Crow, all these things. I know none of my friends were talking about this stuff, but I was hearing it from my parents. So he said, oh, and there were famous actors there. And they mentioned famous actors, one of which was Burt Lancaster and also Charlton Heston. and. Uh, Marlon Brando and, you know, tons of people. Right. So all these names stood out in my head. So when I meet Burt Lancaster in Scotland, I've never met him before. First of all, I was introduced and in my head, I'm going, this is amazing. This guy looks and sounds exactly like Burt Lancaster. <laughs> he was big and he was Burt and he had his laugh and he sounded like Burt Lancaster. Pleasure to meet you. <laughs> you know, like, oh, that's good. I used to do it better, but you know. No, that was anyway, good. So during <laughs> during the shoot, we he was only there three weeks, but I tried mm -hmm. to you know get as much time with him as possible. And I told how, him how old was he during Local Hero? Sixty nine. Yeah, I think that was his eighty second movie. Yeah. 
I'm 70. At the time, see, he seems so old. And now that I'm 66, it seems. Well, I'm 75. Young. I'm older than he was then. Right. So I, we were making, you know, we're talking and I told him what I just told you. And he and I said, was it true? Did you, were you there? And he said, yes, I was making a movie in Paris called The Train with uh, Paul Schofield. And he collected 2000 signatures of Americans in and around Paris and brought them to the March on Washington. Wow. And when King would stay in California, he very often stayed with Burr Lancaster. Wow. Burt was a big part of the ACLU back then. Wow. And he was a very progressive guy. Mm -hmm. Now this is the 50s and 60s we're talking about, mm -hmm. but he knew who, who he was, mm -hmm. knew who he was. Mm -hmm. And he said, uh, I believe when there were busing experiments in Los Angeles, I believe Lancaster paid for it. I mean, he was a very dynamic human being. But that's, you know, so he told me that story. And of course, I'm listening to him as if it's, you know, sweet smell of success. I, I can't, you can't get his movie voice out of your head. But he was very moving, very moving. When, when, they, when we finished shooting, they gave him a party at a, at a hotel restaurant uh, off of Loch Ness, of course. And they gave him a, a present, a goodbye present. And it was a kilt with the with the you know the dagger that you put in your I don't know what the Scottish terms are, and like he had his pants off like in a second, <laughs> and he, you know he's wearing like tidy whities and he put his put his kilt on, and then he made the most amazing speech. Um, basically, he said. Uh, this is one of the best scripts I ever read. I'm so flattered. And he complimented the cast and thanked Bill. I mean, thanked David. And it was a very moving. This is not somebody with experience. This is, this guy was a god. This is Burt Lancaster. Yeah. And he was, he was not being anything other than humble, moved, funny, and caring. And at the end, he said, and I'd like to thank uh, Bill Forsyth, who it was so much fun working with, but I've never met anybody who speaks no known language. <laughs> I mean, every day was like that. Every oh, my day. God. By the way, Laura says Animal House didn't change my life, but Local Hero did. Thank you, Laura. Yeah, she's, she's part of that Local Hero fan thing. She went on there and said you were doing this interview. She's been crazy for the last couple of weeks. Well, for those, for, those who liked, for those who like that movie, it's, it's, I get it. I've got films like that for myself. Everybody has a song or a book or a movie or a piece of art. There are things that, you know, they that resonate to the core. Well, they bring us out of ourselves. Mm -hmm. They give us courage, all those kinds of things. You, you can't act that, mm -hmm. that's not my job. Mm -hmm. But if I'm lucky and I do a good job with other people, 
I mean, Bill, that was, that was, you know, I, what I was allowed to do, you know, when you said uh, quiet or to me, the lower register has been magical to me. Mm-hmm. And this guy, we, we never spoke. He got it. It wasn't that he, he just trusted me mm. and he, we would say, we would communicate via the, the film, by the dailies. Mm. His philosophy was if he's giving notes, he's hired the wrong actor. Wow. I mean, I never heard him say one time, one time. We shot the end of the movie on the second day. Huh. That's how powerful that movie is. We shot the end of the movie when I, when I come home with the shells and yeah. the rocks. That's day two in Houston. I haven't had this experience yet. Wow. But all I knew was to do nothing because the mask will let the audience project onto the mask what they see. Because I, there's no way I, I can do anything. So I said to him, nothing, right? And he said, less than nothing. It's the only note I ever got. Wow. Here's another thing. I noticed after a couple of weeks, anytime anybody had a suggestion, he would shoot it. He would just listen. And then he'd set up the camera. And then we'd do the idea, whatever it was. So I said to him after a couple of weeks, I said, why are you doing that? Uh, you know, it could be anybody, the cinematographer, another actor, somebody walking around with a tree, a tr- you know, a tea, tea kettle. He was listening. To, these were his people. He was just listening to everybody. So one day I asked him, I said, how, how, why do you do that? He said, because it's faster to shoot an idea than to debate an idea. And I thought, that's why he's so brilliant. Wow. And he knew he's going to get the credit for it anyway. That's why you want all you, there are no bad ideas. There's ideas that don't get used, Mm -hmm. but the more you can give ideas or get ideas, that's where the fun is, you know, at least for me. Okay. So, okay. Okay. So you want to go on to others? I, I, I just, I just, we have to talk about the Sopranos for a minute because uh, Zellman. um, (laughs) So, so somebody said to me this afternoon, you have to ask him about um, James Gandolfini hitting him. And I actually heard you, I, please tell the story because it's a beautiful story about yeah. who he is too. And yeah. um, so wait, well, before, before we get to that scene, The Sopranos is already on. You're, you're coming in on season three. You know what I you're auditioned, walking. I auditioned for the part in the first year that Peter Bogdanovich played. I wasn't I very good. I love Peter. I interviewed oh, Peter years great. ago. Yeah. I love yeah. Peter. Um, very special. But I, I don't think my audition was anything. It's not like I left there thinking, why not me? I thought he was an actually a great choice. But I got a call from David Chase. Oh wait, you got you auditioned for that role for his role? Yeah, for for the psychiatrist. Oh. For, yeah. Yeah. Okay. But then. Uh, I got the next year, I got a call from David Chase saying, I think I have something for you. Uh, I've, I've written a part that I think you'd be good in. So he sent me the part of uh, the corrupt assemblyman. And um, 
Uh, I did three episodes in the second year and three in the third year. And um, I'd never met again Feeney before, but you know, he, he, he's an impressive person. Uh, and obviously I'd seen the show, so I knew how good he was. And I'd seen him in other things. He, mm -hmm. You know, I, I knew who he was, mm -hmm. but this was an actor meeting a part. Mm -hmm. which is how this stuff works mm -hmm. if that's what you need in this crazy life and um i mean singers are their voices but actors are the voices of writers and you have to get a job where you match up in a way that nobody could you know i mean chase was auditioning other people before he got James. So, mm -hmm. you know, if, if he were alive, he'd tell you the same story. Sometimes you meet a part. And if you're lucky, all the other actors in the movie with you or on in the play with you, they're meeting their part. And it's the director's job to draw that out and for, to help them find the intimacy that leads to something special. Anyway, he was very sweet to me, very generous. He knew my work and was, you know, thanked me for, you know, being in the show and we're really glad you're here. And it became pretty clear pretty quickly. He knew that his responsibility was not just to be the lead, that he was going to protect this company because David Chase is a force and success can kill you, mm -hmm. as we've talked about. Mm -hmm. And uh, everybody was kind of new. Most of those people were new. Um, and so I did my shows and I thought it was gonna, I thought what was interesting was that Chase created a corrupt character to mirror the corruption of the family. Mm -hmm. So it was a way to say, don't look at gangsters as the only corrupt people, you know. Mm -hmm. it, corruption exists in every discipline. You Boy, are we to... learning that today. Well, but that's just an extreme example. Mm -hmm. But, you know, that's just the way it goes. Uh, it's not excusable, but I thought the character was, you know, that's what made it interesting to me. Mm -hmm. And then we got to the scene where uh, he beats me with a belt, that scene. Now, all the table reads, table reads, you know, are the cast gets together and for the first time, here's that week's episode. Mm -hmm. Now, what I understand is the only people who got this whole script were James mm -hmm. and um, his wife. Um, Edie Falco. Edie, God, brilliant Edie. They're the only two actors I think they knew. So when you are reading that table script, there are people who are gonna die that don't know it. Right? You know, you're reading the script and all of a sudden you're dead. Anyway, we get to the scene where he beats me. And he, I think it was written that he rips me. Vincent Pestora, by the way, told the story about yeah. how he found out he was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's and how Joey, and Joey Pants, how he found yeah, out yeah. he's gone. I got at the table reading. Yeah. <laughs> so in the scene, it's written that he rips my underwear off. Now, you're finding this out at the table read. At the table. 
Now, I don't mind. You can kill me. But if you want to see my ass, you better call me up a couple of days for <laughs> fucking reading. I was pissed, but I didn't say anything. So every, they have an incredible food spread there. When you're a successful show, mm-hmm. you know, you're eating baby lamb chops. <laughs> it's like incredible. Best Italian restaurant you can go to. So I'm just sitting there. I don't know what the fuck to do. And Jimmy came over and sat next to me and he said, um, you okay? I said, man, I got a problem with this. And he knew it. He was very sensitive to what actors go through. And I said, I don't get it. You don't need to, you don't need to humiliate an actor to humiliate a character. He said, okay. He called David over, David Chase. Nobody talks to David Chase. I mean, nobody tells David Chase shit. Jimmy does, Edie does, maybe a couple other people do, but not the guest. So David said, what's wrong? He said, why don't you call me, man? I'm not showing my ass. He said, well, that's the way it's written. I said, I don't care. This is fucked up. You do not have to humiliate me in front of millions of people. I'm a fucking actor. And I knew I'm probably done. I don't think he's writing this character anymore. Anyway, he leaves. And Jimmy said, I can't fight this for you, but I'll support whatever you do. However you want to deal with this, I promise you I'll stand by. But this is up to you. Which, of course, is the truth about life anyway. Mm -hmm. You know, there comes a moment in life when only you can make the decision. Mm And they're very rare and very special. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you lose. Most of the time you lose. Mm-hmm. When you stand up for yourself, probably most of the time you lose. But when you win, and win isn't even the right word. When, when you get to say, this is who I am, take it or leave it. That's, mm-hmm. that's more like it. Anyway, then the director comes over later, separately, and he's trying to convince me. John was his name, really wonderful guy. Passed away very young. John Richardson, I'm not sure. And I said, John, ain't gonna happen, man. I don't care, it's not happening. I'm not doing that. So we, we go to work and we shoot the scene. And the day we shoot where he's beating me, it's gonna be, you know, it's gonna be intense. So I went to the prop guy, the guy you know hands the props. I said, uh, do you have the belt that Jimmy's gonna hit me with? And he brought it over. He said, you won't feel a thing, it's styrofoam. I said, I took off my shirt. I said, hit me. Harder, 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 harder. And this guy was wailing. Wow. I didn't feel anything. Didn't feel anything. How does it not fall apart if it's styrofoam? All I can tell you is that if it were leather, he would have killed you'd have him. to hit me half and I'd be, you know, screaming. Right. I, mean, I could feel it, mm-hmm. but it was a pain you could take. It wasn't, right. it wasn't, you know, I wasn't, a, I'm not a masochist. I just, so I said to Jimmy, I said, hey man, the prop guy just hit me with the belt. You can go crazy, man. I didn't feel anything. And he looked at me like I'm nuts. So he went over to the prop guy. And he took off his jacket and he said, hit me. 
And he kept saying, harder, harder, harder. And then he looked at me and he went, got it. Because he knew he could exert his full, powerful self. Because the camera's wow. going to be this way, right? And we shot the scene. And we finished uh, our work. It was probably 3.30 in the morning, 4 o'clock in the morning, outside Silver Cup Studios. And, uh, you know, it's quiet. And we're waiting for our cars. And mm -hmm. so I said, you know what a mensch is? He said, yeah, yeah, I think I do. I said, it means a whole person. You know, I just accepted it as a compliment. And I just thanked him for, you know, a great experience with him. And, uh, you know, you can't have as much fun as I just did. And we said goodbye. And I've, I'd seen him at some events later on, but I never did the show again. And then because when you, because you wouldn't uh, take your pants down. Oh, I don't know if that's true, but my guess was, I don't think this guy wants anybody telling him how to write. Mm -hmm. And I just, I just don't think you, you don't humiliate actors. You want to talk to them. You, you know, I need to trust everybody in the room. That's what. That's the most important thing. If you create an atmosphere of trust, and it's true anywhere not not mm -hmm. unique to us, what we do mm -hmm. but if you want people to give their soul to you you gotta feel safe mm -hmm. you know and i believe me i've been in situations where some actors don't have their heads screwed on right and it's not fun standing up to people like that but you have to at least i have to but it was fine i made my peace it's still, I think he still got to see half my ass anyway. But <laughs> all I was interested in is that I trusted this man mm -hmm. and he trusted me. Mm -hmm. And that's what made, makes the scene work. So, so yeah. So, okay, I, I've like kept you forever. Your wife's gonna, okay. gonna kill me. So succession, so are you still doing, is, is that? I did, I did uh, two episodes. I don't know what the fourth year is going to be like, but I just got a really interesting job. Mm. I don't know if you like crime fiction, but you know who Harlan Coben is? I don't. Okay. He's written 34 novels. <gasps> he's sold 77 million books and he's got a new series called Shelter. And I just, and he, his first series was based on the character uh, uh, Myron, uh, shit, Bolitar. And there's like eight or nine novels. That's where he made his name. Mm -hmm. They're hugely successful. He's got a seven series deal with Netflix. This is for Amazon. So, um, um, Myron Bolitar is the main character of his Bolitar series mm -hmm. and he just hired me to play Myron's father Alan but it's not about Aaron, Myron it's about his his brother's son Mickey so I'm playing the grandfather and Alan is being played by Adrian Barbeau I don't know if you remember Adrian of course and uh an actress named Constance Zimmer I think is her name is playing my daughter, another daughter, uh, Dee Dee Cohn is in it. Oh. And it's a lot of young kids. 
it's about a children's crusade kind of story. It's really, and this guy, he's really fantastic. And my wife Cornelia turned me on to him because I was talking to my manager and there was this, would I be interested? It wasn't an offer, it was would I be interested? So she's walking in the living room and I'm talking to my manager. And I said, Harlan who? And she whips around <laughs> and I said, uh, Coben. And she looks at me and she goes, that's a big deal. So I learned about him through her. Mm. And uh, I'm, you know, on a new adventure. That's why I'm in this hotel and start work on Friday. Tomorrow. Oh, nice. Oh, Costumes. nice. George yeah. went to say he loved it, but I'm not sure what he's talking about. But hi, George. I love George. Uh, George loves you. I know that. I love So, because he commented yesterday on, on one of my posts about yeah. you. So, so you and your wife, are you going to collaborate? What's, what's going to well, be? Well, I, I, I've got to turn it over to somebody else. It's very hard to get stuff done. I tried for, I don't know, it seemed like 10 years. So I've kind of let it go, but I'm going to see if I can help somebody find her because it's a great character. It's, it's a, a, a young woman named Madeline Dare, 25, 27, 29, 31. It's a young, it's, it's, she's a great writer. I don't know why anybody hasn't scooped this up yet. This is the time for a young, and I don't mean a superhero. Mm -hmm. She writes about women. She oh. writes about real people, like this guy Harlan Coben does. His writing is like insane. I've done a lot of good work with amazing writers. This guy is like awesome. Wow. So it's a, I'm again, thrilled at 75 that I stumbled into something interesting. I don't know what's going to happen with it. But like I told you at the beginning, man, when something interesting happens, I don't care where it goes because I get to live off this story for another couple of episodes. You know what I mean? Fantastic. Yeah. You know, by the way, I have I have a group called Women Who Write, and I had a literary salon in my living room for years. Oh, you should. And your wife. Oh, yeah. So so when it starts up again, when the cra I'm still yeah. COVID crazy, but when it's I would love to have your wife She's come and read to us. Viciously funny her insights into behavior just fantastic and it's not there's no pandering it's it's about everything you know it's about it's like you know when every character is fighting for their life no matter whether they're good or bad that's when material is great you know you you want your enemies or you want the bad guy or the good girl or the bad everybody wants to have their peace, wants to say their peace. Believe me, what I, I once worked with a guy who had become, he was a defense attorney. Oh no, he became a prosecutor and he was a, had been a defense attorney. I said, what did you learn about being a defense attorney? He said, everybody's innocent. <laughs> yeah. And that's, you know, you can't, at least for me, I, I, I don't editorialize what I play this is it and I bang into the other actors and somebody edits it or cuts it or whatever and you know I was a theater actor first so I'm trained to say the words but I'm also an improviser so and it's not I don't I don't really you know you write it I'll say it I, I just throw in my two cents about I, I've learned that it's okay to say 
could I do this? Could I say this? Mm-hmm. You know, if you were, you're working on a new play, you're probably, you know, the, the actor and the writer or the actors and the writer are still putting it together. Collaborative. Unless you're working for Aaron Sorkin, then you can't change a word, right? There are the I don't know. ones I, that you I can't. don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I'm not, I don't know. I mean, I, you know, everything is, is a rumor until I have the experience. So I don't so, know. So Peter, this is going to be on Netflix, this thing that you're starting now? Oh, no, this is no. Uh, Amazon. Amazon. Oh, this is Amazon. Okay. Yeah. And Amazon. this particular one is called what? Shelter. Shelter. Yeah. it's I, It may be listed as Harlan Coben's Shelter, you know, like they try and, because mm-hmm. it's mostly kids and they're, he's thrilled with them. And that's pretty rare. Um, I'm, I'm going to meet them all on Friday. I mean, Fantastic. it's like, you know, yeah. So I, uh, well, I, you know, I just like what I do. I love my wife and I have a great, you know, we have a great crib and I get to play with friends on occasion. You know, this COVID thing has been a motherfucker to all of us. So it's hard to not see as many people as I used to. Have you gotten it? No, not yet. But, you know, Cornelia's got autoimmune shit and I'm 75. And so we're, we're not like isolated. We go out but it's limited. We still wear a mask, you know, when we're- I got the Omicron booster yesterday, by the way. Oh yeah, we're about to get that. Mm -hmm. What what was the reaction? None, I I have the secret for this. Okay. It sounds crazy. You start drinking Fiji water the morning of hours- Fiji water, the- The the bottled Fiji water. And you drink that all day. You you don't stop drinking Fiji water. We had zero reaction. This is the third booster zero. Because it has electrolytes and magnesium and other things. Oh, okay. I'll write it For some reason, it works. I'm telling you, everyone I've told, it works. Not zero, no reaction whatsoever. Cornelia hates water, so I'll try and (laughs) twist her arm. She's got to drink water. Anyway, Peter, thank you. This is such a joy for me. I just adored you our whole lives. And um, I'm sorry that I went on for so long, but I. No, are you kidding me? Thank you so, so much. I've adored My pleasure. every minute of this. Thank whoever phoned in and give George Went a big uh, hug and a kiss. I, I will. And Mark Metcalf for setting this up. Thank you, Mark. Yes. I love you. Okay. Thank- Have a wonderful night. Take Thanks, Rodon. Bye.